Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. This is Buddy Buscemi, and I'm here with Bill Stiegel. How are you, Bill? Hey, what's up, buddy? Good to hear from you. Good to hear from you. What's going on down in Texas? Uh, it's springtime in Texas, my friend. I know that's something you don't have any any knowledge of uh, your part of the country, but uh, here the grass is green, the trees are blooming, and uh, we're hitting temps into the 80s so nice time of year to be in texas hey bill i see that daniel just popped up so i'm going to bring him on air okay perfect hello daniel how are you i'm not too bad is that bill or buddy this is buddy buscemi <laughs> how you going mate i'm doing hi, great hi, and hi, yourself daniel. Hi there, Bill. No, I'm very good. It uh, all worked out after all. The technology is... is <laughs> it's amazing when it works, and it's frustrating when it doesn't. That's for sure. So, um, Daniel, what kind of damage did the uh, cyclone do in your, in your part of the woods in Australia there? It, um, it actually hit quite a bit further south in the end than where we are. We got a lot of rain pushed our way. Um, but down south, it, it took out a number of trees, and I think there was a row of houses that were damaged. But by the time it, it got to the coast, it wasn't wasn't too much of an issue, which was which was thankful. Fantastic! Just took out uh, communications. We were scheduled to do this show a couple of days ago, and uh, we really appreciate you your flexibility and being able to reschedule for for uh, for what it, us is, is evening time here. No, not at all. It's my pleasure. Great, Daniel. So uh, Bill and I wanted to talk very quickly about something that's going on in the Morelia Viridis Forum, which we thought is pretty pertinent to having you on the show tonight. And um, I don't know if you've been on there recently, Daniel. I know you're a member, but there was a thread recently by one of the members just talking about the frustration involved with trying to educate folks in regards to purchasing uh, either farm bred animals from a reliable source or, or captive bred animals as opposed to buying animals from uh, companies or individuals that are known to import wild-caught animals and uh, sell them as farm bred and the troubles they have with it. And um, so the conversation's been pretty pretty uh, productive and there's a lot of ideas about doing education um, 
some of the folks over on the MVF came up with some great ideas, and it uh, looks like they're going to, in the future, there's going to be some big changes over there as far as what you'll see on the, uh, on the forum and how people can uh, do a little research before they, before they make a purchase, not after. Okay, fantastic. Did you see that thread? I, I haven't. Yeah, buddy, I saw that, and um, you know, just kind of scanning over the the posts, you know, it, it looks to me like there were several different reasons that people would buy uh, a wild caught or a or an unknown non captive bred animal, and probably the the most common was lower price point. You know, they they can right. save fifty or hundred hundred dollars. Uh, by buying an animal, um, you know, that's not captive bred, um, you know, and, and part of that is just a lack of knowledge about the possible perils of an imported animal, uh, not only health issues, you know, parasites, but, you know, people just are not not cognizant of the potential treatment of wild-caught animals being collected, uh, you know, and, and transported into the United States and Europe. Uh, if I, you know, but I saw quickly... If I can quickly interject, price is obviously a, a major issue. That's correct. But I think also for a lot of buyers or consumers, they, they genuinely just don't know that the animal is, is wild caught. There's no reason why they should. They probably walk into a pet store and see a pretty little yellow or red snake and, and purchase it without having any idea about the, the wild versus captive breed issues that they're currently facing. Right. Right. Absolutely. Agreed. Absolutely. Agreed. A lot of uh, misinformation or just, uh, you know, out-and-out out lies in order, I guess, to make a sale. Um, and most people, you know, when they find out that they've, you know, they've made a, a bad choice possibly with uh, purchasing the chondra, they, you know, they, you know, of course they're animal lovers, so of course they're heartbroken to find out that they're actually supporting, you know, the wild-caught animal trade and, um you know, they, they most people do their best to, to make sure the animals care for properly and bring it along and, and provide a good home for it. And, and a lot of them actually become the educators for the next peop, for the next round of folks who who are interested in buying. They kind of tell their little stories, their little war stories about you know, be careful with who from who you purchase and and you know you know verify if possible that the animal is is indeed where it says it's from, where you say it's from. So, um, well. What- what typically happens, buddy, is the animal doesn't do well, and right. so then they've saved fifty or a hundred U.S. dollars, but they get an animal that's not backed by a sanctioned uh, captive bred breeder. They can't get in touch with the person that sold them the animal. Uh, it dies, so then they're either out an animal or they have to repurchase, and so right. you know they get stung. They get stung twice. It's a lose-lose situation. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I know Daniel had talked about this before with me and, and had shared this with me on the forums that, uh, and the people that kind of are in the know or, or maybe are, are aware that there's a possibility that this animal could be uh, a wild-caught animal. I think, you know, Daniel had kind of stated this in, in his words, I think, where people are looking to jumpstart their, their breeding projects on the, on the backs of wild-caught animals in hopes that, you know, I get a wild-caught animal that's maybe two or three years old or closer to sexual maturity than an animal that, you know, you or I would sell Bill as, as a six-month-old or a yearling, and they feel, they feel like they get a jump start on actually doing a breeding, uh, a breeding project. But that's not always necessary, necessarily true. Um, in some instances, it goes backwards. 
Um, what do you think about that, Daniel? Yeah, certainly. I think the the issue in general was perhaps created some of the stigma that chondros or, or green pythons are, are difficult to breed in captivity, to keep and breed. Um, it's certainly my experience and those of a lot of others and perhaps with yourselves in in the US that captive bred snakes are a hell of a lot easier to, to keep and breed than, than wild caught animals. But if, if people don't have the information that the animal is wild caught, then they're probably sitting there wondering, you know, what, why is the animal dying? Why is it presenting with this illness or, or whatever? And um, if they if they did genuinely know that the animal was wild caught, then perhaps they would they would implement measures to to combat disease and parasites and, and those sort of things. So it really is the misinformation that you know that's being being thrown around. And and I don't have this information firsthand, but I I assume some of the importers genuinely don't actually know that they're that they're peddling wild-caught animals either. They're, they're probably sold as, as farm-bred by, by exporters in Indonesia, and they turn up as farm-bred, and that's how they're sold, when, when in reality they're actually wild-caught. Wow, that's, that's, uh, that's disturbing that it can, it can be on that level of deception, really. Right, right. definitely. Um, so regarding the... the the stuff on the, the post on the MVF, it looks like um, Matt Morris and David Newman are going to, Matt's written a really, a, a pretty in-depth uh, husbandry and a question and answer type uh, uh, paper on chondros. And, it, you know, I read through it, it looks, you know, very well written. And uh, so they're going to try to get that up. And I think David Newman over there, who just did an interview this past Tuesday night on uh, NPR radio, um, who goes by David NJ on MVF is uh, they're going to try to collaborate and work together and they've got some ideas and maybe how to bring some new people to, over to the MVF before they purchase a chondro, not after. So if you're a member over there, look for these changes. If you're not a member, I'd strongly suggest um, to go over there, log in, become a member and participate. There is a wealth of knowledge there that you will get nowhere else regarding chondros. I've seen some of their uh, some of Matt Morris's um, sections, and you're exactly right. It's what, what they want to put together is something that's more than a care sheet, um, but probably less than Greg Maxwell's the com- more complete Chondro book. It's probably somewhere in between where they could get on the website and in you know 15 or to 30 minutes they could get through a, a very concise wealth of knowledge about you know how to keep how to keep a new chondro. So I, I think we right. should support them fully. I agree. I agree. So I think before we go any further, I'd like to introduce, formally introduce uh, Daniel, Daniel Latouche. Uh, and I'll start off by saying in 2011, our guest co-authored and published a paper titled Wildlife Laundering Through Breeding Farms, Illegal Harvest, Population Declines, and a Means of Regulating the Trade of Green Tree Pythons. This paper revealed what many chondro keepers in the U.S. had believed to be true, and that is the vast number of chondros entering the United States under the farm-bred moniker were indeed wild-caught animals. In 2012, he co-authored another paper, paper titled Relationships Between Ontogenic Changes in Prey Selection, Head Shape, Sexual Maturity, and Color in an Austra- Australasian Python, which was Morelia viridis, green tree python. And this paper revealed... Uh, that young chondros 
uh, preferred ground-based ectothermic prey and adults preferred semi-arboreal endothermic prey, amongst other uh, astute observations of these arboreal predators. And then finally, in the summer of 2013, Daniel visited the states and presented at the International Collective Arboreal Symposium, which we call ICAS, and his presentation was very well received and has left many folks wanting more and asking many more questions, which is why we wanted to have Daniel on the show with us tonight. So, Daniel, welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. Thank you very much. Welcome, Daniel. Welcome, Daniel. Yeah, we've had a lot of feedback. Uh, I have personally about people that are uh, were really interested in tonight's episode. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on. Not at all. Um, Daniel, why don't, uh, that was a nice introduction from Buddy. Uh, why don't you give us just a, a minute or two of background on yourself, uh, what you think that the listeners should know about you? Um, I guess I should start with, uh, I suppose, a, a similar story to everybody that I, I grew up with a, a fascination with, with nature and, and animals, plants, and those sort of things and was spending a lot of time in northern Australia and specifically Cape York Peninsula in areas and habitats where, where green pythons occur. Um, for me in those days, I used to happen across them and they were just oh, that, that green snake that curls up. I didn't really think much of it. And, um, and I suppose I was about 14 when I found my first green python and growing up, I, I began to have a, a more academic interest in and what they were doing, and I began to understand about uh, their their desirability in pet trade and so on. And uh, I, so I I started a master's degree looking at their abundance, population sizes, and those sort of things um, in the Australian population, specifically in the the Macquarie and and ranges. And then then after that, shortly after that, I I started venturing into New Guinea, where um where we happened across. Uh, the trade in large numbers of of chondros for for the pet trade it turned out that they were being exported as captive bred when in, in fact they were being being collected from the wild and I'm still researching chondros not quite as much as I was in the past and, and these days mainly mainly the efforts are focused on on enforcement activities but doing a lot of research with other species such as scrub pythons and carpets and blackheads and those sort of things. Uh, here where I live in, in Cape York. And that's that's about it for me. Yeah, fantastic. I, I know you did a show uh, with Nick Mutton shortly after ICAS, uh, and you described a lot of the similarities and in, in differences between or the habitat uh, that, uh, you know, the green trees and the scrubs uh, kept. It was a fascinating interview, and maybe we can hit on uh, some of those things later on in the show. Yeah, certainly. So, Daniel, why research with condors other than your your interest? Was it just something you said, you know, I, I, um, why were you drawn to doing research with condors specifically? Was it just your general interest that you acquired growing up in the Cape York area? Or um, you know, did someone say, "Hey, maybe you should, maybe you know, this would be a good research project for you as you work on your master's degree"? No. So, actually, yeah, it's a it's a bit of a convoluted story, I guess. Condros, because I was spending a lot of time in areas where 
not a lot of people go, which is yeah, because yeah. they're very remote and you know difficult to access. Um, and the challenges you face when when you're there out in the field are, are challenges that many people are not interested in in, in facing. <laughs> and yeah. um, and so I guess it just it's from that I understood that in Australia they were of restricted distribution, and so I thought you know I might as well. But there is something about chondros compared to other snakes, something very very special. I can't pinpoint it, but obviously that from an evolutionary point of view um color is the most conspicuous thing about an animal that we can we can see visually and so these individuals being born red or yellow and then changing color to green so dramatically that that is a really a really fascinating aspect of their natural history and i think answering questions to do with natural selection and darwinian evolution they're, they're a fantastic model organism for doing that um and so that's sort of from the academic interest. I guess I started, I started my master's in the first year of my undergraduate degree, um, which is is not typically um, how most people start their master's degrees. But I, I basically found a supervisor who was willing to take me on, and really in the early days, uh, did the research um, sort of as an excuse to play with cool snakes in cool <laughs> places. And then right, okay. and the interest the interest did develop and um and eventually I submitted a thesis and was, was awarded a were awarded a masters and since that time the academic interest has just, just grown and stimulated and 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 carried on and now I've moved into New Guinea and started studying the other populations and always been interested in the in the sort of the social side of it and how they were traded and so on and and you know, looked into economics of rarity and a few other, few other different issues that that um, chondros are just a good species for 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 answering those sort of questions. Gotcha, Un- understandable. Now, when you mm. when you wrote the uh, wildlife wandering through the through the breeding farms paper that you pu- co-authored and published in 2011, was that part of your master's work, or was this something you were you were doing outside of of that work? No, so that was so the first publication was on um, was on green pythons in Cape York Peninsula, where in one of the populations that it's the, really the only accessible population there in Iron Range, and specifically along a creek line in the Claudie catchment around around Gordon's Creek, where where I think is probably the easiest place in the world to to find and see crows in their natural habitat. Um, and because of that access and because of the interest, I think when I first started studying green pythons, they, they sold for $20,000 a pop in Australia. Wow. And so there was a lot of interest, obviously, and quite a few people, more than most people realised, quite a few people uh, went up and, and took them from the specific area, which was accessible and, and they were relatively easy to find. And we found, in comparison to other populations, there'd been a a shift in the in the size and the population demographic in that area, and it, it's hard to be 100% sure whether that's attributable to poaching, um, for want of a better word, or, or collection or harvesting. Um, but but it was certainly interesting. And so Jessica Lyons actually did her master's degree on the trade um, of green pythons in New Guinea. Um, we were sort of tossing up different ideas: should we do some radio telemetry studies or so on? And, um, and just said no. She'd rather look at the the sort of social aspects and things based on 
earlier work I had done in New Guinea where I, I sort of came back and said, hey, look, there's a, a thriving trade and there might be a, a master's degree in this and certainly a, a good opportunity to travel around a beautiful part of the world and, and get some cool science done. And so Jess and I embarked on that and I suppose the rest is, rest is history. Right. Now, when you were doing... When you were doing your research for this for the for the paper you published in 2011, the wildlife laundering, um, did you have some idea before you began the research that that this was as widespread as you th- as it is, or were you surprised by the result? Um, I, I I owned and I'd read Greg Maxwell's book, which I I haven't read for a long time, but from memory. Doesn't he hint upon it in the book? I think he hints right. upon the fact that some of these farms may have been doing this. I, I can't remember exactly, but you know there was a general underlying feeling that some of this was going on, like you alluded to at the start of the show. Um, there was just no hard hard evidence that it was actually occurring. And so in 2009, just for for shits and giggles, I went with a mate to Biak Island, and Biak is where the largest number of of condros are being taken from. The world and we really, you know, we we hit upon a, a very large trade where up to 200 individuals were being taken out of the forest every week, um, and so that's just it's just a large volume of snakes, and so we thought, well, this this is particularly impacting on these populations, and therefore is is worthy of further study. Other areas in New Guinea are not harvested quite nearly as much as. Um, as that Biak population, but yeah, I don't think it's necessarily surprising given that you know there are there are people there who who struggle to make a living doing other things often, and so a, a snake can be quite a bit of income for them, and so it's it's hard to hard to to wrong them for that. Right, right, Daniel, absolutely, Daniel. Daniel, it sounds like in your your travels and your experience, you've come across some of the the farms in Indonesia. I mean, can you? Tell the listeners some of your uh, personal experiences with. Uh, I know there's several accredited, you know, government accredited uh, farms in Indonesia, and there's probably others that are not accredited by the Indonesian government. Can you can you expand a little bit about just some personal experiences you've had with with farm bred animals there? Yeah, sure. Um, I suppose a disclaimer to begin. Um, my research with several farms was in 2010 and 11. I've been back subsequently to a, a small number of farms, but the point is that some of the the data or information may have changed since then. So um, I'm not going to name any any farms specifically, but in in Indonesia there are 19 registered companies that are allowed to government registered companies that are allowed to export uh, reptiles. Uh, a smaller number of those, I can't remember how many, a smaller number are registered to breed green pythons. So I think in 1990 green pythons were fully protected in Indonesia and that means they're not allowed to be taken from the wild. Um, however, Breeding farms were set up, and green pythons, as you know, can be exported um, as captive bred with CITES permits with a source code C, which stands for captive bred. Um, when I was doing my research, there were no farms, not a single one, that did not 
take wild-caught animals and export them as captive bred. That situation, mm-hmm. as I say, may have changed now. I just, I just don't know. Um, sure. Okay. There are certain farms that are literally just a, a, a front for for laundering animals. They don't have any facilities or stocks and those sort of things, and they just bring in wild-caught animals from collectors and ship them straight off. There are others that breed very, very small numbers. They may get the the, the choicest specimen, say a, a high blue animal from Biak or or something or other, and attempt to breed it, and they and they have some success, as I understand. And then there are other farms that um, breed larger numbers of chondros, genuinely captive bred chondros of of several generations. Um, but those farms, when I was um, doing a lot of research in the country, they were still exporting large numbers of illegally wild-caught animals. So basically it was a crapshoot. You wouldn't know when animals came over if they were truly farm-bred, captive-bred animals or if they were uh, animals taken from the wild? Technically, no. I mean, I've seen a hell of a lot of these things, and so I can genuinely generally tell whether they're wild-caught or captive-bred just looking at them. I wouldn't go to so, so far as to say I'm right 100% of the time, but, you know, when you've right. seen so many, it, it's it's relatively easy, as I'm sure it is for you, for you guys also. The difficulty is when they're, when they're juveniles, and in particular, Biak, Biak Island individuals, are large numbers of, of Biak Island animals are brought in as juveniles, and some farms will keep them for a while, Feed them a couple of pinky mice and, and worm them before before sending them out. Scary. Which, yes. which, which hopefully which hopefully we'll get onto it uh, later. Um, I, I won't talk too much about it now, but that's not necessarily a problem. You know, sure it's illegal and um, a lot of people have a, a moral issue with it. But in my opinion, there's there's nothing wrong with that. The only difficulty is that they're being falsely advertised. And so you know, hopefully we can we can adjust it a bit a bit later in the show, but uh, fundamentally there's there's not too much of an issue with that. It's just the, the misinformation. Right, right. I'd like to uh, just make two statements, if I could, real quick. If you're listening and you want to read Daniel's papers and other Condra research papers, um, you can go to my website, gtpkeeper.com. There's a section for research papers and Daniel's papers are there. If if you have the, t- the time and an opportunity, I suggest you read them. They're very interesting. And the other thing is, too, is that uh, if you have a question for Daniel and you'd like to call in and talk to him yourself or ask him a question, our guest call-in number is 714-464-5230. So, um, so Daniel, so we often see this here in the States, and it's a, it's a discussion I've had with other condor keepers. We're always a little baffled. Like when we – well, we sell a neonate maybe for a, a certain price point, um, and then maybe a couple years down the road we decide to let some older animals go. They tend to be more expensive, particularly if they're females. Um, we've noticed here in the States we see a lot of supposedly two- or three-year-old male and female chondros that are priced the same as neonates. Do you think that's because they're being collected as wild caught and then marketed as farmed animals? What do you think? What's the 
I was just curious how how business model would be able to sustain that by allowing their their young animals, their neonates, to be priced the same as a, a two or three year old female. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think you already know the answer to that, but to clarify I do. it. Um, <laughs> they, um, that, that's exactly what's sly, happening. You're a, takes... one, you're a sly one, buddy. <laughs> it, um, it takes it takes time and and fees in terms of staff to pay and feed the animals. It takes um, you know it costs money to to breed the rats or to buy the rats to feed these things. So it doesn't make a lot of sense economically why they would sell a, a larger older animal that has the potential to breed. Um, for 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 a lower price, and they would sell the the neonates or juveniles. And so the reason is because um, they are wild caught, and it costs them nothing to 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 breed them and to to raise them, because all that takes place um, in the forest. In my experience, I I have a paper on this that I don't know if I've sent you. It's in the journal Ecological Economics, which looks at rarity and prices and compares them in the United States and versus New Guinea and Indonesia and so on. But um, from memory, they, in, in Indonesia and New Guinea, they pay more in the field. So on the ground in Papua, they pay more for juveniles than they do for adults. And that's because okay. juveniles, it's obviously easier to tell the story of, oh, I bred this animal in captivity if it's a juvenile than if it's an adult. So the authorities in Indonesia have obviously also picked up on this, and so a lot, a lot of the exporters cover the the juvenile animals because they can. It's easier to pretend that they've they've been bred in captivity, and that's why there's a lot of demand from animals from Biak because a lot of juveniles can be sourced in a very short time. Um, and so, sure, that's but that's basically basically the reason. Okay. Interesting. Daniel, we've picked but, up but, on a lot of... Sorry, uh, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, just, I was just going to make the point that it would be very hard, though, to just look at an individual animal being sold in the United States and, and to look at the price and to unequivocally say that that animal was wild caught just because of the fact that it was being being sold for for a price that you didn't think was appropriate given its, given its size or age. You know, it's, right. that's why, why there's such difficulty. We just We just don't know. You know, we can certainly get a sense of your feeling about the exportation of chondros from from Indonesia. Are there any legitimate reasons to export chondros, wild caught chondros from from uh, from Indonesia? I mean, certainly, uh, you know, you can make an argument uh, for some species conservative, you know, conserv- conservatism uh, to you know better the well-being of the species if it's a uh, a species that perhaps is endangered, and you're trying to, um, uh, you know, better the species. Are there, are there any legitimate reasons for anybody to export wild caught chondros today? Yeah, well, I, I guess the point is, why not? There, um, there's no conservation issue. Green pythons are extremely abundant and common in their natural habitats. They're going to be wiped out by deforestation long before they're wiped out by, by overcollection. Um, I think it would be very hard, given the price of the snakes, to to make them go extinct through harvesting just because, you know, it it, it costs a lot of time to go out into the forest and look for um, individual 
the declining species to, to harvest the last few is actually e economically doesn't make sense. Um, so it's not a conservation or necessarily a sustainability issue. Um, and, and so I don't see what the what the problem with it is. Indonesia obviously protected them because they they want to. I don't really know, to be honest, why, why they've protected them. But my argument to the Indonesian government has always been, why don't you just legalise the wild export of chondros? They export a, a large number of other snakes that are taken from the wild, and those trades are completely fine, so why shouldn't they do the same with chondros? And perhaps um, people could pay a bit more for a, a known locality-specific Arthak mountain snake or a, a known Yapen Island snake. And ideally, a lot of the, the proceeds from that, if there was a small conservation levy, perhaps that could go back to the communities that are actually living, uh, coexisting side by side with these animals. And that might actually provide incentives for these people to, instead of cutting down forests, they may think, okay, I'm getting a regular income from selling wild-caught snakes. Perhaps instead of cutting it down, I'll leave it intact so that I can keep reaping the benefits from the snake trade. It's a little bit difficult in practice, because chondros are only worth about two hundred dollars when they when they come out of um, Indonesia, you know the, there's this precedent been set with trophy hunting and so on in Africa with rhinos and elephants and so on, where where people pay fifty thousand dollars to to cull a problem elephant, and a lot of those proceeds go back to the community. And slowly over time, the community realised let's stop poaching and killing these animals, elephants, for example, which are often a nuisance, they destroy gardens and they can often be aggressive towards people and livestock. And, um, and so because of the benefits they were getting, they actually started protecting the elephants. And it would be fantastic if we could implement a similar system where not only um, the animals are being harvested sustainably, so there was no conservation issue, but secondarily it may also protect um, biodiversity more broadly through habitat protection and that obviously protects other species and also provides a livelihood benefits for, for some very, very poor people living on the planet. Um, I think the, issue now yep. is, think the issue now is that the trade is illegal, um, and everybody knows that. From top to bottom, they all know that. And so animals, are, they're shipped covertly. Um, they're wrapped up in newspaper or little bags, and they're, they spend weeks on boats and so on. And we saw very, very large numbers of, of dead chondros and other reptiles. And that's basically attributable to to the poor conditions um, that come about through through the illegal trade. It would be fantastic to legalise the trade and say you can do this. We can provide training on how you can um, ensure the, the the welfare and the the cleanliness standards, hygiene, etc., for animals in your care, and how to to worm wild animals properly and so on. And I think the major thing which I touched on earlier is then you wouldn't have the misinformation. You know these animals arrive as wild-caught animals in the United States and people could therefore make an informed choice about whether they actually want to a captive bred animal or a wild-caught animal and if they do decide to take the wild-caught option then they can implement a number of uh, fail-safes or whatever like uh, quarantine um, you know whatever you guys do with your worming and so on all that <laughs> sort of thing to ensure that they're um that they're not going to, to bug up the the collections that are already established and also give that, that specific animal the greatest chance of survival. So in theory, I, I despite 
you know, you read the papers we write and they, they might seem negative, but actually, and, and as though we're anti-trade, but actually I'm all for sustainable trade. It's just, it's the misinformation with these species that is that is the real issue. And I'm not a big animal rights kind of person. I'm, you know, fairly down to earth, grew up on a farm, those sort of things. And, you know, killing animals is all part of, part of life's rich pattern. But um, I do think it's important to, to maximise or, where possible, ensure um, animal welfare standards. And because the trade is illegal, that, that's difficult to do at this stage. But if it was, if it was legalised, then perhaps we would have a better chance of, of getting more animals out of the wild um, and actually, actually getting them into the hands of, of private keepers in the US and Europe um, alive instead of dead. Well, that's a very interesting uh, theory because one of the things that we didn't bring up about people in the United States and perhaps Europe that uh, purchase uh, imported animals are, would be the more experienced keeper, not the, not the new person, but the more experienced keeper that wanted to inject new bloodline into an existing projects or you know, the fact that they are really true locality uh, specific, you know, they, they really want that kafia or they really want that matakori or the biak. And, you know, now the way that these animals, the wild card animals are imported, you don't know. You know, you don't know really where they've come from because everything has to be so underground, hush-hush. Uh, so you make a very interesting point about legalizing uh, the exportation of those animals. Sure. I agree. I mean, I think, you know, if if someone were to give me two two chondros tomorrow and say, buddy, this one is a captive bred chondro and this one is a wild caught chondro, um, they would go, both go through quarantine, but obviously the wild caught animal is going to get, you know, much tighter scrutiny, uh, definitely a visit to the vet, some fecals run, the, the whole gamut. Um, but when people present it as a captive born and bred animal and it is a wild caught, you know, they might just typically do the normal quarantine and uh, unknowingly, you know, introduce maybe uh, a, a different microorganism into their collection unknowingly and which could ultimately wipe out an entire collection if not handled properly. So it, it's, it's, it can be very scary for someone who isn't knowledgeable um, about the, the source, of, source of their animals, and especially if they have a well-established collection and um, something as easy as bringing an animal in of an unknown origin can, can completely wipe out an entire collection in years and years of work. So. Well, and I, and I think the success of somebody that's trying to work with a captive bred animal versus an imported animal, this success is going to be ten times in favor of the person that's working with a captive bred animal. I mean, and that's Agreed. what, buddy, you and I, you know, you, you and I's kind of one of our missions is to try to introduce these animals to people that are not familiar with them. And, you know, there, there's no way you would want to introduce uh, a new keeper to an imported animal. That's just, you know, th that that's setting them up for failure big time. Right, right. So um, you've, you've kind of talked a little bit already, Daniel, but, um, you know, what, what is the status of chondros on the main island of Indonesia? Um, 
Well, just to clarify, Indonesia is an archipelago of 17,000 islands. Green pythons only occur on the island of New Guinea, which is okay. geographically divided divide between the independent nation of Papua New Guinea and the provinces of West Papua and and um, and Papua, and also the Aru Islands are part of the, the Indonesian province of, of Maluku. Um, so Papua New Guinea is a separate issue. Um, they have no, they don't allow any exportation of, of wildlife, and so chondros are, are still eaten for subsistence by some people there, but that's obviously not a, not really a conservation issue. And then on the main island, sorry, not the main island, but the main the main part of Papua, or West Papua, on the island of New Guinea, the Indonesian side, um, chondros are heavily harvested, but their status is, is completely fine. There's a, there's a lot of habitat on the island, and um, and it's, it's still intact, so all else being equal, if that habitat can re- remain intact, then harvesting is not going to result in the extinction of, of green pythons. That's good news. Uh, what about the status, uh, Daniel, on the smaller islands in the archipelago? Biak, uh, Ru, Kapio? I mean. Yeah, well, I suppose I'll, I'll go through each of those. Aru uh, is a, a, a series of a number of very, very large islands where, where chondro populations and, and habitats are still very intact. Harvesting is not going to, to impact those populations in, in any meaningful way. Um, however, I've read recently that a company has lobbied the Indonesian government and received permits to to destroy most of the habitat on the island to create um, a sugar palm, not sugar palm, sugar cane plantation. Um, I don't know whether this is a guise to actually log and sell the logs because I don't know how how profitable sugar cane would be. But if that went ahead, then that monoculture could certainly. Um, impact green pythons um but but as it stands is currently the the populations are fine because the habitats are fine on on biak um habitats are, are slightly degraded but a lot of secondary foresters has um has built up and our surveys have shown that green pythons are, are really abundant in those secondary forests and also in the primary forests. so i don't think that's necessarily an issue our work certainly showed that harvesting, because the island is, is relatively small, um, harvesting had resulted in changes in the, the population demographic. And that the difficult thing to determine is, you know, most people think, oh, that's, that's terrible, but it doesn't actually mean that the trade is unsustainable. It could just mean that the, the population has shifted and now the harvest is focused on, on immature individuals. We would need a lot more data to actually say that, okay, the population is, is crashing and those sort of things. But what people need to understand is sustainability is a funny terminology because what we're actually discussing is commercial sustainability. And sustainability means to keep something going indefinitely. So the idea of commercial sustainability is to keep the harvest going indefinitely and to keep it at a yield or at a level where you're taking maximum number of individuals for... I guess a hypothetical million years, um, and so that actually has no bearing on ecological sustainability, which means that populations have been depleted so far that they can no longer serve their role in the ecosystem, and they actually um, keep degrading and so on, and which which may lead to extinction. Like I said earlier, I don't think harvesting is going to do that because it's just too hard to go out. It's not worth your time and effort to go out and harvest. 
the last few individuals of a, of a declining species. Unless the price for those individuals, it's sort of, we call it the anthropogenic Ali effect, unless, unless the populations are thrust into a vortex where the increasing rarity due to harvest actually increases the price of the last remaining individuals, which provides incentive for people to go out and actually take those last few individuals. And which brings me on to Kofiao, because we're perhaps seeing this occurring on that island. Um, contrary to a lot of a lot of uh, what a, what a lot of people say is that the habitats in Kopiao are actually fine. There are there are big forests there, um, but in my experience, there are very 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 few uh, chondros in those forests. So I've, I've been to Kopiao on two occasions and spent a lot of time uh, surveying large tracts of forest in areas where I'd be guaranteed to find a good number of green pythons in, in other sites, say Biak or Australia or mainland New Guinea, and uh, I didn't find myself a, a single animal. We were um, we met the the local trader. There's a single trader on the island, and I think in five months he collected five individuals, and so they so well, people Dan- work and work. Sorry, carry on. Well, Dan- well, Daniel, tell tell our listeners the physical size of the Kafio Island. It's tiny. What is it, 10 kilometers? Yeah, it's made up of a number of islands, but Kofi al-Basar, which is the main island, I guess would be uh, one kilometer by two kilometers. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, sort of, sort of long, and, long and thin, I, yeah, about, about that. It, it took me, how long, six hours, six hours to trudge through the forest that, that one kilometer. It's a it's a coral island, so it's um the the ground is all cast sort of limestone, sharp, jaggedy forest growing on top of it, and so it's it's quite hard to to move across, particularly at night when you're looking for snakes. But um yeah, I think it, I think it took me six hours there and back to cover that that one kilometer when I was when I was surveying there. But there are a number of other islands dotted around, such as Dare and Talobi and so on, and I also surveyed on those, and people said that no, they'd no longer find chondros on those small islands surrounding the, the major Kofiao Island. And, and in fairness, that is where the, the major population centres are. When I say population centres, they're just tiny villages. Um, but most people don't actually live on the main island; they live on smaller islands that are dotted around um, that main island. Hmm. Wow, intriguing. Well. Um you know, we've talked about uh, Indonesia, and we've talked about uh, some of the smaller islands. What about what about Australia? Can you give us a sense of what the status of chondros on 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 in Australia is, Daniel? Yeah, I, I think chondros in in this country are, are fine. The the habitats are intact, and they're they're well protected within several national parks. The populations are very very large. Um, Hard to tell if they're the largest, um, the largest I've ever studied, but certainly green pythons, for, for me at least, are easiest to find in Australia. Perhaps because I have most experience with this um, locality, if you will. Um, we we have yeah, three three distinct populations: one in the McElwraith Range, one of in the Iron Range, and. Uh, others in the Kawajinachi ranges, which are coast ranges, and they're small little pockets, and each one is isolated by areas of 
of woodland and also uh, woodland valleys that separate them from the larger larger McElrath range. But green pythons are found in great numbers in all of these places, and so I think their success is, is guaranteed. The only thing that may may change that is is climatic regimes that you know over the last 17,000 years, for example, 17,000 years ago was the the height of the last glacial maxima, where sea levels were 180 metres below what they are today. So most of northern Australia was connected to New Guinea. It was very dry, and so rainforest, obviously, the name gives it away, it requires rain, and so it retracts <laughs> back into refugia, like gorges and so on, where a lot of water can be stored in pools, and... Um, and rainforest can can remain there, and that's where green pythons can can hide out. But if those refugia are not available, um, then then ultimately climate change, not an induced climate change, obviously, but um, just natural cycles of climate change could could wipe out green pythons. But that's not going to happen in in our lifetime, certainly. Daniel, the, I'm always intrigued by some of the stuff I see with the Australian keepers. Um, if you live in Australia. Do you, is, can you go collect green tree pythons from the wild? Do you need a permit? Is there a process you go about it? Or if you just decide, I'd like to have a couple of green trees as a, you know, as a pet, maybe a breeding project, do you just go and collect them on your own? Is there a process to do that in Australia? That's a great question, but um, I was thinking the same thing. Sure. So it's, it's legal to collect any wildlife uh, in Australia, and it's technically illegal to touch a leaf on the ground, a dead leaf in a national park. Um, or to touch roadkill or anything. The laws in this country are incredibly prohibitive and strange, in my opinion. But um, you can technically apply for permits to to collect for scientific purposes um, protected wildlife. And so I, I've obviously had permits to, to study them and, and collect them in the past. But um, right. And technically you should be able to, under the law, you should be able to apply for permits to harvest them, small numbers for, for commercial use. Um, however, the government is, the Queensland government is, is quite averse to the commercialization of, of wildlife. In my opinion, it's a somewhat um, backward philosophy, but, um, yeah, but, but there you have it. And I, I don't see it necessarily changing anytime soon because obviously a few people going in and taking a hundred, even a thousand snakes in some of these areas, if, if, if legal and well-regulated, is not going to have any conservation impact. So I don't necessarily see what the issue is, but someone in power clearly does. Can you... Are chondros from Indonesia or from uh, Papua New Guinea imported into Australia? Can that be done legally? No. So Australia cannot import... It's... <laughs> yeah. Um, we can import exotic birds and a number of okay. exotic mammals. Um, however, Australia cannot import reptiles. So it's a, um, it's not really a consistent legislation, clearly. Um, we have a number of, or large number of um, Papua New Guinean and Indonesian, probably Indonesian green pythons in Australia. Um, for example, we have a large number of, of snakes that are and, and were obviously red neonates. Um, and as you may know, Australia only has the the yellow neonate form in all of southern New Guinea, or the the, the southern species, which is Morelia viridis, um, has only the the yellow neonate form and not the red one. So it's quite clear that these animals have come from 
from the northern side of of the New Guinea Central Cordillera, probably from from Biak, based on the the ones I've seen. But um, the government, as yet, is turning a blind eye to it, which is which is fine. There's no again, there's no issue, but it's technically illegal. But the difference between legal and illegal is just a piece of paper which can be ripped up and rewritten. So, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, do you have more questions about uh, condors in Australia, Bill? No, I think thought that was a, okay. uh, a, a, an excellent explanation. I had some of the same questions that you did. Um, it sounds like it's uh, tough to be a naturalist in, in Australia. Yeah, it can be. You just need to play by the rules. <laughs> um, so we'll kind of move, I guess, to what I call the controversial part of of the interview, um, and I know at least it, uh, from you know some of the stuff at ICAST or the International Collective Arboreal Symposium, um, some interesting talk after your after your talk or presentation, um, and I like talking about this because uh, if if I go tonight and post up how many species of green tree pythons exist on uh, Morelia viridis forum. I'm pretty sure by tomorrow there will be probably 30 replies, and none of them will be the same. Um, but uh, I will ask you, how many species of green tree pythons exist? Well, technically, there are two. The first one okay. being a southern species, which has a white vertebral stripe, lives in Australia and southern New Guinea, um, has only yellow neonates and not red neonates, has differences in head shape and tail shape and all of those things which are correctly identified in Greg Maxwell's and a number of other books by, by prominent keepers. Um, they also, most importantly, differ genetically by about 7% mitochondrial divergence. And so I'm working on a, on the revision, or not, uh, yeah, I suppose the revision of, of green pythons, which will, will finally provide the evidence to formally split them uh, into two species and that also okay. includes a lot of their, their nuclear genomes not only the, the mitochondrial DNA but the nuclear genes which have provided a lot of insights and because we were able to to sequence a large number of loci it's actually provided insights into some of the other relationships between the localities such as the Vogelkop or Sarongs, Manakwari and how they relate to Yarpens and Biaks and Jayapuras and those sort of things. Um, there are two species, but I guess the issue is, the problem is, where, where do you draw the line? Species is right. a spectrum, and it can't just be obviously done on the basis of colour. It needs to be a, a holistic approach to how we determine what a species is. For example, you know, not being racist by any means, but you can tell an individual human being or Homo sapiens from Sierra Leone apart from a, a European Scandinavian, for example, just based on colour. And now to go the right. next step and to say that that colour is a is a morphological distinguisher which um, can be used to divide them into different species is obviously nonsense. And the same applies to chondros. So you need to look at a, a number of different aspects which can um, um, be used to to make the determination. But the main thing is the DNA. You know, given that given that we're we are our DNA, it's. Um, you can't really ignore that it's the, the fundamental building block of life, and so if there's such a large divergence in your in your genetic makeup, then then chances are you're you're certainly a, a different species. And to put it into some sort of perspective, if we're 
99% related to, to chimpanzees and their different species, then um, then these two chondros are only, I think, about uh, 92% related to, to one another, and we're debating whether they're, they're not different species. And so what's it's, the name um, of the what's what's the name of the other species, Daniel? If it's not Viridus, what what is the other species? It's Morelia azurus, which was um, originally described as as Morelia azurus from BX. So the name is available. Um, it just at the time um, Meyer described it, he didn't know that Schlegel had found uh, Morelia viridus on the Aru Islands, and so. It became a synonym because Schlegel published uh, two years before Meyer did. Um, in those days, obviously, we didn't have internet and email, so it was harder to find out if if someone had had pipped you at the post. Um, and because that name is available, and because subsequently we've found out there is a cryptic divergence, and those those are two different species, um, that that name takes takes precedent. I see. So there's Morelia azurius, which is the northern, the nominant northern race, and Morelia viridis, which is the southern race. Is that correct, Daniel? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, which, which Bill might explain why I've seen some, some folks that have bred a Bioc to an Aru, and they've been, you know, okay looking green tree pythons. You know, I think they're all, you know, they're all good looking snakes but nothing extreme, and then they've bred them together, and, and the neonates have been eye poppers. Um, right. And you're wondering, what's going on there? And so I guess that, that might explain the, you know, essentially the hybridization maybe is why you're seeing the extreme phenotypes from these neonates. So that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. And, and, you know, a lot of, like that's... Uh, uh, they're very Bioc by a root crosses are very very popular here in the states uh, on the commercial market. They seem to be snatched up really quickly. Um, so that that's interesting how that that all plays into the uh, the extreme phenotypes when you when you pair those two animals. So tech, I mean, technically they'd be a, a, a hybrid. Technically, yeah, interesting. And the uh, Daniel, I, I've read the paper. What was the? Do you know offhand the author of that paper? That they were they were actually break did a DNA analysis of all the I guess the species of, of pythons and and broke down how they were related through family trees. And quite by accident, they found that the northern race and the southern race had this seven percent separation. And I, uh, it's on my website, but I don't I don't know what the the author's name is. Um, yeah, and then they, they Leslie, published Leslie, another paper. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, so Lee Rawlings and Steve Dinellon, um okay. did that work, and they they did the the phylogeography of pythons in general, but found that there was this this huge divergence between. I guess they were based on the information available in the pet trade and the different localities and so on. They they probably took a larger number of samples from green pythons than they did from other species, just to see if they're was any meaningful difference between the localities and, and subsequently found that there there was and it was it resulted in the two different species. They didn't go the next step and actually describe the species because they didn't have the morphological data and, and the greater information actually needed to separate the two. Um, 
but but yeah, that that paper was the first to show that their mitochondrial DNA had a seven percent divergence. But it, again, it, it, is, it is such a tricky thing in terms of what you were saying before. Are we, are we creating hybrids? Um, I don't really like the species debate. There are several different species concepts. The biological concept, which should should really mean that the two the two different species shouldn't be able to breed and create viable offspring, which we know they do. So it doesn't satisfy that species concept. It's a you know the evolutionary species concept, a, a bunch of different different things. And so really, really species sit along a spectrum. And so where human beings draw the lines between them is a is a, is, a, is a bit of a subjective thing. You know, species are not stagnant in time or space, and so these things uh, continue on their, their evolutionary trajectory. We have no idea whether they'll come back together in the future or diverge further. One might die out. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a really fluid thing, so we as human beings need to categorize and so on, and I understand that, but it also makes the discussion quite difficult. And I guess for, for keepers, people are just looking at these snakes thinking, Damn, they're just they're just green snakes. They do exactly the same thing. Why why can't we breed them together? And why are people suddenly calling them hybrids? And now there are two species. And I can understand why it's frustrating and and confusing. Yes, as you can tell, we still call them chondros. <laughs> um, Old habits die hard. Yeah, that's right. Um, exactly. There's still a lot of angry people over that change. Um, but that's okay. That just goes to show you that you, you're, you're passionate and you care about it, and it's okay to resist some change. If you want to call them condors, you know, have at it. Um, I call them condors, and I think it's perfectly acceptable. Um, what about, are you, you know, do you think there's any valid subspecies of, of the northern and southern race based upon the research you've done? Um, we, we did the, I've got the, the, the phytogeographic trees sitting somewhere on the computer, but um, from memory, the mitochondrial DNA doesn't show up any meaningful differences on that north-south divide in the two species we just discussed. But the nuclear genome, which is actually meant to, to look at more broad-scale relationships, the mitochondrial DNA technically should have been the one to look at the fine-scale differences. But because we managed to, to, to sequence so many genes in the, or so many loci in the, in the nuclear genome, um, we actually started to see some differences, and it, it shows up definite differences between BAC animals and, and northern animals. It shows differences between animals from Sarong and Manakwari, um, from Jayapuras and so on. How meaningful those differences are, we, we, we still don't know. It's also a difficult right. one because if take BAC Island, for example. It's, it's an oceanic island, which means it's never been connected to mainland New Guinea, and therefore animals can't have during periods of, of glaciation when sea level dropped, animals can't have made their way across land bridges. A, a good example of that happening would be Yarpen, where the animals are almost identical to, I guess, Jayapuras or others in the mainland because they were once connected. Biok, on the other hand, was never connected. And, um, and so the animal had to get there either by being taken there by humans or they rafted across a mass of vegetation and so on. And so even though they might not show um, a lot of genetic difference at this stage, we do know that that population is never going to be connected in future to um, the main population on, on, on mainland New Guinea. And so we can right. say technically it's on its own evolutionary trajectory, 
So why not describe it now as a different species, even if technically it hasn't diverged uh, far enough to be uh, a different species at this stage? I don't really like um, subspecies. That's just my 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 personal thing, but a lot of people do, and 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 that's up to them. Like I said, a lot of it's subjective, and we 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 still can't decide on where to draw the lines, and so it's it's somewhat difficult. But no, I think if anything, Biak is the only population which which would have any further interest in terms of subspecies or, or species status. But um, even even that's still a bit questionable. Would subspecies would that, that be? Uh, yeah, Bill. Go ahead, buddy. I was going to just say, would subspecies be synonymous or similar to locality type? I mean, or is that a different is that a different term? Yeah, I, I, I suppose you could you could you could use that. It's you know it would be valid. There are obviously differences between animals from Sarong and animals from Jayapura. Everybody can see that. It's just again. Um, and that's because they're different localities. You could say they're subspecies. You can talk about micro-localities. Technically, if I take a GPS uh, point from one side of a river and then cross 100 metres of that river to the other side and take another GPS point, then they're two different valid localities. So it's about levels of resolution and the scales in which you want to separate these things. So there's always going to be differences, just like we discussed differences to do with um, people from Australia and people from the US or people from um, Hawaii versus New Zealand or whatever, that everybody has a, a an interrelationship and so do, so do species of animals. Again, it just comes down to, to where do you draw the line. So you could say, sure, um, subspecies are, are synonymous with, with localities. I prefer the word locality because subspecies denote some sort of meaning and technically under the Linnaean system actually does have a technical meaning and so I wouldn't use subspecies, I would stick with localities um, but technically you're not wrong. Okay. Quick question about Biak Island. There's a, a rumor here in the States and it's I guess based upon hearsay but um, you know, Biak seemed to go through this slower color chains than most other uh, green tree pythons. Um, they seem to be, of course, uh, have a lot of yellow in, infused in their body as adult colors. And there was a theory in, or speculation that the island of Biak itself, and of course this is hearsay and rumor, so please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong or interject your personal experience, is that the, the vegetation on Biak Island is heavy but different than which you would find, uh, you know, across the strait on on a on a Papua New Guinea. Is, is that true? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> I think I think it's a personal communication with with Cameron Tepperdell and from memory in Greg Maxwell's book. He, I think he cites Cameron. I could be wrong, so forgive me if I am. But um, I think he says that the that the habitat on Biak is a lot drier or something. Right. And when, when you first Brushier. get to Biak, it, yeah, sure. When you first get to Biak, and therefore if it's drier, perhaps it's more woody and the woody stems are a bit more yellow than, say, the green of a, of a lush rainforest. And that certainly seems to be the case when you arrive on Biak. But the reason is that most of the, the, the habitat close to Biak town is actually secondary regrowth forest. A lot of it's ferny, scrubby, dry stuff, there's a lot of cassava plantations, and so all of the, 
the primary forest has been knocked down. Um, and it does give the impression that, it, that one is a lot drier and two, the vegetation is, is slightly more yellow. Um, but when you actually go further into Biak and explore particularly Sapuri, Sapuri Island is the is another one just north of Biak where a lot of chondros actually come from and it's divided by a, a small channel, technically part of Biak, so we'll just call it the same thing. Um, and no difference, I should probably make the disclaimer that there's no difference between the green pythons from Sapuri and others from the main island of Biak. Um, but when you go into the forests up there, they're no different to rainforests in any other areas of, of New Guinea. They're thick, they're lush, they're green. That's where green pythons obviously evolved. Human beings have only been on the island for a, a relatively short time, and so deforestation has occurred quite recently. So it's it's really nonsense to, to suggest that, that green pythons have evolved that rapidly to, to change their colour into a, a yellow mottling or dappling so that they can be more camouflaged in those, those dry habitats. Very good, very good. Um, so we've already touched, touched a little bit on locality, but it seems to be another very controversial issue with chondras is the, the locality debate. Um, and it rages far and wide here in the States. And you were here, and I'm sure you heard, Daniel, some of the uh, – I'm sure you received some locality questions uh, at ICAST because, you know, Daniel didn't just give his uh, presentation and, and jet – get out of the area, he actually hung around with us for an, for an entire weekend, which I'm not sure that that was a good thing or a bad thing for Daniel. Um, but uh, I think everyone there appreciated it. I made a lot of friends. Um, it was great. Absolutely. It was a great time. Uh, I want to do it again in a few years. Um, but the uh, we often hear, um, you know, you hear, you know, uh, there are strict localities, and then we hear that, you know, there may be three or four localities, you know, with like, you know, Biak, Aru, Kofiao uh, being like, you know, definitely localities based on their, their, their small island, you know, they're isolated on the island. So that would be a distinguishable locality. But when it comes to the mainland, the locality labels get tossed around uh, very easily. And in my experience with looking at what comes in, um, it seems like some of the localities have shifted names um, as time progresses. And I'm just curious, you know, in your experience, you know, is there, other than the islands, are there true localities? Um, I suppose I should firstly say that I understand it is controversial, but I, I don't think it should be. It's actually very, very simple, um, at least in my mind. I'm sitting here now and you're sitting in the US. We're clearly in different localities, but technically, <laughs> and, I, and I say that with meaning technically, if I was standing one meter away from you, then I would be at a different locality than you. I would be at the locality one meter from where you were standing. So the, the terminology locality is, is perfectly valid. It's just, I think people take it to mean something else. And certainly when you're you know, you have a commercial interest, and I don't know that this is the case for all people, but I imagine it it it, it provides a lot of the confusion. Is when you have a commercial interest, um, having a new locality which says, "Oh, it's a it's a it's a wasai a wasai animal." You see the the wasai turn up on really various forum, and people are often asking, "Where is that from?" It's just a village right. in Yapin. 
So you're basically saying, yeah, the, the animal's from, from Yarpen. Technically, it's no different. It has the same genetic makeup and looks identical to a number of other animals on the island. It's technically a, a valid locality if it was genuinely taken from the area in the vicinity of that village. Um, but, but to pretend that it has any, any real difference to the other, it's conspicuous on, on Yarpen Island that is therefore worth, worth more than, say, um, an animal which is just labelled as a Yarpen is, is obviously horse crap. Um, <laughs> there, there are different, you know, Greg's Ma- Greg, Greg Maxwell's book, obviously, um, and Kibbert and Wiseman go, off, go over it in, in quite a lot of detail, and there are actually, you know, valid localities, and you can tell the difference between a number of them. I'll try and keep out the the southern group, for example, because we know that's a completely different species. But just within the northern animals, obviously, you're correct. The islands can be distinguished, and they they are easier for the brain to to think about the locality concept because they're they're geographically isolated. But take, for example, sarong and manakwari animals. Um, it, you, you can tell them apart. There are features which allow you to, to tell the difference between those those animals, even though technically um, they are connected via via land. Um, you can tell sarong animals apart from from Jayapur animals. Um, I don't think you could go so far as to say if if two animals were put down, or say 100 animals were put down and 50 of them were sarongs and 50 of them were manakwaris, I don't think you would get it correct. Even myself, I don't, I've seen a lot of them. I don't think I would get it correct 100% of the time because there is a great amount of variation. Things like Lere localities, it is a valid locality. There is a town of, of Lere. I've, I've been there and thoroughly didn't enjoy it because I got very... Um, sick while I was there and ended up um, sitting, sitting in a sleeping bag on the, uh, on the floor of the police station while the village was warring around me. Apparently there was some, some tribal conflict going on and so as soon as I um, got better I jumped on the motorbike and got the hell out of there. But technically it's a, it's a valid locality. Um, but it doesn't, in my opinion, differ in any respects from a, a Jayapura or a Cyclops. Um, they're all just names and whether it actually has any meaning in terms of, of biology or species or anything like that is, um, is is debatable and in my opinion not valid. What about physical barriers? There, there are other physical barriers other than just islands you know, that could make the locality uh, argument more valid. Uh, you know, there's a big difference between a 10 meter difference between you and I and a 10 meter difference if there's a hundred you know foot wall between us so yeah, sure. what about physical of, of course and that's and that's probably why you do see some of the variation with between populations that that technically on a map look like you can draw a straight line across land for example there are a number of mountain ranges Maibarat and Arfak that separate a a lowland Manakwari from a lowland Sarong, and that is probably why you see some of the variations you do. It, it's in biology you call it a, a species cline, where the individuals from Manakwari are mating and interbreeding with individuals a little bit closer to to Sarong, and then those individuals a little bit closer again, a little bit closer again, and so it's kind of like Chinese whispers. I hate to use mm-hmm. that phrase, but it's a good one. Um, by the time the, the genes from Manakwari make it all the way to Sarong, 
there have been a, a number of barriers and so on and things that make it difficult and smaller numbers can get through this valley than, than others and those sort of things and you get genetic bottlenecks and so on um, and that is why you see some of the variation that you do and you'll see that in any population of any species of animal on earth. Um, if the barrier is not um, completely prohibitive like the central cordillera um, then, those, then those changes are going to be minor. But in the central cordillera of New Guinea, which is the, the main mountain range, um, it's far too cold and high for chondros to, to get over it. And, and, and look what we have. We have um, different species because of that. Very, very true and very interesting. So... We also hear a lot about micro-localities, and you've kind of touched on this already, Daniel. So, you know, whenever a new locality comes comes across in the, over here in the States, and you're on the MVF, Daniel, so you, I'm sure you see a lot of this too. It's always, you know, is it, you know, is it truly something that's unique um, or is it just a, a, just a normal uh, variation of, of a different animal? Um, and we often see these micro-localities. They're, they're not as, we don't, see them here in the States as often as we did, say, maybe five or six years ago, and I'm not sure if maybe we've become more savvy uh, on this side um, with, with the importation of chondros and, and looking at the chondros. But uh, so, like, are there any, other than the islands, do you know of any true micro-localities that would be so geographically isolated that they themselves are a valid, uh, uh, just an isolated a population of chondros? Yeah, no, not not geographically isolated ones. I, I obviously don't know all the geographic barriers in New Guinea. I'm just saying I, I don't know of any. There could very well be, you know, a population of chondros. Uh, <laughs> it's highly improbable, I'll put it that way. But there could be okay. a, a population with a big wall around it that's only interbreeding with itself and no one's discovered it yet and they're very different. Maybe they're a third species. So in, in, in terms of that, yeah, you can have micro-localities. Micro and like I said earlier, um, geographical barriers aside, technically micro-localities do exist, i.e. one metre away from, from, from the locality right. that you're talking about, for example. But I know there is one area, Mount Basavi, it's in Papua New Guinea, it's a, an extinct volcano which is, is now covered in forest and is quite high and there is forest within the crater. Um, some, a new species of rat has been found which only I think lives in the crater. And so technically something like that, given I've, I've been close to Mount Basavi before, but it's, obvious, it's hard to see through the, through the rainforest canopy when there's no roads or anything. Um, so I never got to see it, but... Assuming there is is not continuous forest up to the top of the hill, yet there is continuous there, there is forest in the crater itself, and green pythons live in that crater, and they're unable to get out, then that could be um, a, a, an isolated interbreeding population that's that's vastly different from the animals at the in the at the forest uh, around the the mountain. Okay, all right. But the things like that are very, very they're few and far between, and it's it's highly improbable. Right, and it seems like that's kind of uh, for a while there here in the states at least, and, and I can only talk about what I see here in the U.S. and the 12 years or so I've been involved with chondros. But it seems like here in the states, it was like every other year we would get a new uh, 
for lack of other terms, locality that was supposedly different from anything else. Um, and of course, you know, they were, you know, demanding high prices. And then maybe someone like yourself, knowledgeable like yourself, would come along and say, uh, you know, no, that the WOSI is on Yapen, and so that's really just a, a Yapen chondro, and it's really no different than the other animals that were coming off that island. So we've kind of seen that die off here in, in the U.S., and I'm not sure if just because we're better educated and we keep in touch with people like you um, and talk about these things, or if it's, you know, if it's just, uh, you know, I don't know why it's not yeah. happening anymore. I'm ho- hopefully, just I, 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 we're, I think we're, we're savvy enough not to let it happen. Yeah, I think that's what true. That I think handle? it's a com- combination of all of us. You're, you're educated, you're more savvy, you know how to play the game, and, and you know when when you're being played. It's, um, you know, all those <laughs> localities, Singi, Aso, Cyclops, Jayapura, um, Ginyam, um, Dempta, Sarmi, you know, all of those places. You, I could drive to every single one in a day on, I, when I owned a motorbike and was had a flat in Jayapura, we used to visit those localities often. And the reason they're called different localities is because there was a collector in that area who who gave condros to the main exporter in, in Jayapura. And, you know, technically they are different localities, but is there any difference? Of course not. You, you, you kind of need to blanket the entire area. And the, the major localities that I like to think about from a biological or evolutionary point of view are one, the the vogel cop animals, so that's sarong, um, fuck fuck, myberet, um, manaquari, um, also includes islands in Rajarampat such as Kofiao and Wagio and uh, Batanta, Misul, Salawati. Um, so that that's one group, or what I would call one broad locality, and so that's a damn big area. But that's what I would say is the vogel cop locality. Technically, the different islands are localities again, but we're talking about terminology and not necessarily meaningful differences. Um, right. You obviously, have the islands around around the country, and then you have all of northern New Guinea, which doesn't just stop at the, the imaginary line, which they call the border of Papua <laughs> New Guinea. It actually goes all the way down to Wau in a place called Kamaiali, which is just north of the, or just south, sorry, of the Huon Peninsula, about 50 kilometers south of the town of Lai, um, spelt L. A-E, and that is a continuous range which includes what I call the northern population, and that includes Japura, Aso, um, Mambaramo River, Nibere, um, Wewak, Venemo, Madang, um, the Huon Peninsula, etc. That's all one large population, and then you have the south of New Guinea, which is, um, you know, everything from Somewhere around Timica, it's 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 a little bit funny. You may have heard of the Timica locality. Yes, that's actually yep. south of the Central Range, but the animals from there are actually Azurius or the northern species. So they're coming around the range to the south there. It's it's complicated, but but anyway, somewhere around there is the divide, and then everything east of that in the south is all the, the white vertebral stripe, short stubby tail animals with only yellow neonates. And that extends all the way to Milne Bay in Papua New Guinea, and then it comes up around the Owen Stanley Ranges in Papua New Guinea. And so on the other side, we actually have the southern species coming out to the north of the 
the central dividing range. And so it, it's very, very complicated. There are places like the Wagi River Valley, which is where, um, which is where Carl Switek collected. I understand or I've read his book. Um, so he collected there and he said, I think he, from memory, he said all the highland uh, chondros had, had white vertebral stripes and all the lowland chondros um, red juveniles and, and had the, the blue triangles without stripes. And that, that's actually incorrect. All he was doing is when he was in the highlands, he happened to be sampling a population of the southern species, and then he would drop off the highlands over the northern side of the range, the northern watershed, down into the lowlands of the Jimmy River Valley, and lo and behold, he was finding the, um, the northern species. And he, he attributed that difference in morphology to elevation when actually he was just dealing with the different species. So you can go to Mount Hagen, around there and you can find animals that are uh, the southern species and then go a little bit further in the valley, cross a high point and slightly down into the other side into a place called Bayer River, which is where, where Carl was collected and you suddenly have, it must be, a, must be five kilometres difference and you, and you actually start seeing the northern species. But because there's that high point in the middle, um, they're not crossing over and, and interbreeding, they're, they're actually divergent. And so it's a really, really complicated thing. Yes, agreed. And the the book uh, Daniel is referencing is The Adventures in Green Tree Python Country by Carl Sweetak, which is an interesting read if if you're interested in reading uh, his adventure trying to capture, acquire, and acclimate green tree pythons and bring them back to the United States. Very interesting book. A definite read if you're a it's fan a, of chondros. It's a hard book to find. Uh, buddy, I've looked for that book and have tried to find that book and have been unsuccessful. Gary told me he was going to send me his copy, but he never did. Chivino? Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, now it's live on air. He's got to do it. <laughs> we'll have yeah, to hold right. him to I'm it. Gonna hold, him, hold him to it. Daniel, I was wondering... Yep. Um, we talked a little bit about, I'd love for you to kind of paint a picture for our listeners about what chondros are like in their native environment. You know, what are they eating? What are they doing? How much are they moving? Um, it, it just, uh, it's very, I think it would be very interesting to hear, you know, we, we look at these animals in, in a box all day, and I'd, I'd love to hear some background about what they're doing in their native environment. Yeah, no worries. They're um, actually incredibly boring snakes. Like they don't move a lot at all. They, but I've split them into juveniles and adults because obviously, if you've read that paper, you understand they're doing very different things. So juveniles um, are of so just the yellow morph, for for example. So the yellow morph juveniles um, are hunting during the day, mainly during the day, mm -hmm. and usually in in tree fall gaps, so in the rainforest where the tree has fallen down and there's obviously a lot of light hitting the ground, vegetation's dying, it's becoming more yellow or, or lighter in colour, um, and that obviously provides camouflage for, for the, yellow, the yellow snake. Um, they also inhabit sort of grassy areas on the edge of the rainforest. I, from memory, I don't think I've ever found one under, under the, the rainforest canopy proper, and I don't think... Any, anyone really has. So they're, they're quite easy to find, for example, an iron range along the side of the road because that's where, obviously, there's an open area in the forest where the road's been cut through and um, 
And so on the sides, the vegetation is a little bit wilted because of the sun. It's a certain type of vegetation, often quite grassy and scrubby. Um, the secondary regrowth, and that's where the juveniles hang out. And they're obviously hanging out in that area for one reason, because they get the camouflage, like I said, and two, because they're after small heliothermic or, or ectothermic um, skinks mainly, which come out in the day and require that, that sunny, um, sun-dappled area to actually thermoregulate and to go about their business. And if, if you've spent any time in rainforest, not just in New Guinea or Australia, but South America or the Congo or Indonesia, for example, you'll... Um, you'll notice that the, the abundance of skinks is a lot higher in areas where there's sun hitting the ground than under the deep, dark, um, more more cooler canopy um, in the rainforest proper. And so green pythons and their juveniles are hunting during the day in these areas, very, very close to the ground. Um, I suppose, how big's my thumb? A couple of inches um, off, the, off the ground, and they're just sitting there waiting um, and with their head draped down usually for a small skink to come past. And I, I used to set up cameras in front of them. I used to find them and put little video cameras there. And they really do very, very little. They, they might readjust themselves once in six hours. And I only got a few videos of them actually actually eating prey, and it would take weeks for them to actually actually find prey. So they're not eating very often at all. Um, at that's, night, those, that's interesting. those individuals... That's interesting. That's interesting, Daniel, because I, Buddy would be the first to tell you a lot of people have um, better experience getting young uh, neonates to feed during the day as opposed to night. I think most people that, that keep uh, you know captive-bred chondros in captivity or, uh, feed them in the evenings or at night, um, but Buddy uh, you know, will tell you that oftentimes the, the juveniles will feed better during the day. Sure. Yes, mm. it's been my experience. I would say, of the babies I've hatched, I would say 95% of them eat, eat during the day, and there's one or two that just won't take food during the day. And I try them at night, and they they, they seem to prefer nighttime feedings. But I, you know, before you know this information came out, um, and Daniel shared it in his paper, and I believe David Wilson had it in one of his papers too. I, I actually stumbled upon this just quite by accident. Uh, everyone's telling me you know feed these baby chondras after the lights are out. That's when they were fed. And uh, one day my my oldest son, when he was, you know, uh, an infant, was taking a three-hour nap, and I decided I've got three hours during the day. I'm going to try to feed some baby chondras. And um, I had had a clutch of 25, and I had two or three that were eating at this point. And uh, I think the number was like 17 fed that day in less than an hour period during a day and and since then i've that's what i do feed them during the day and i'm glad to see that it's they, they do that in the wild <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's funny i don't know if, i don't know if all the that, that's mainly my experience with the southern species i don't know if they do it a lot of the uh, one of the breeding farms that was producing large numbers of chondros in Indonesia, they would they would feed most of the small snakes at night because they thought it was easier, and they they were doing you know huge numbers, thousands of snakes, and so I think you know it, it could be different between the different localities or, or certainly the different species, but yet, yet to find out. In terms of what they're they're eating, I think I have records from a, about 150 juveniles, um, gut records, often 
often they'd die or some of them I would, would sacrifice to see what's in their guts and um, and others I could palpate out of them by gently squeezing it out for either regurgitation or, or to get their fecal samples. And um, from memory, 100% of the juveniles had fed on skinks. So that's diurnal, um, day-active lizards. No, didn't find any gecko remains, um, didn't find any rodent remains or birds, and didn't find any frog remains. Whereas I have, you know, there are a couple of people in Australia that have said they've had a lot of success um, getting chondros to eat eat small frogs. And so perhaps they're a natural um, prey item in the in the wild, but I, I certainly don't think they're a, a common prey item just based on, on the sample of 150 individuals, which takes a, a, a reasonably healthy sample to make that sort of conclusion. Right. So they're they're um, not they're not eating they're not eating uh, rodent pinks like like we try to get them established on <laughs> uh, captivity. <laughs> no, surprisingly, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> well, no wonder I'm so sure hard. I'm sure there's the odd one that takes the trip down to the pet store somewhere in New Guinea and, <laughs> and feasts on pinkies, but I need to discover them. Well, buddy, no wonder um, it's so hard to get him, get him eating those. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, what else? Have, what else? You know? Did you do yeah. uh, the same thing for older animals, Daniel? Yeah. So just to, to carry on the, the the story in sequence, I guess when the when the small juveniles start to change colour, um, they they their head shape, the trajectory at which it grows, actually starts to change. And what I think is happening is when when the head becomes physically large enough to ingest a small rodent, um, that is when the juveniles are, are changing colour to green. They they begin to hunt at night because in in the tropics here, um, rodents and mammals are, are mainly nocturnal, and so to to find those prey to a, a greater caloric intake, it's it's more beneficial for them to eat rodents than it is um, small lizards. So they, they move into the, the closed canopy rainforest and turn green where the camouflage uh, suits them the best. And um, they start eating eating rodents and their, their head shape trajectory actually changes. It's The difficult thing is, is to figure out which which aspect causes the other aspect. You know, do they do they eat rodents and then suddenly something in the in the rodent makes it change colour? Does it correspond with sexual maturity? What, what's the what's the deal? What, what, you know, what comes first? It it appears to not coincide with sexual maturity. So I guess it's just a an instinctual thing where hormones are suddenly released at that age and they they change colour based on the fact that now they're suddenly suddenly old enough or large enough um, to to actually ingest those rodents. Um, when they become adults, they like I said start hunting at night and they'll do that. Most of the time, they'll come all the way to the ground. Some of them sit on the ground, mainly the larger individuals, presumably because um, they're, they're less susceptible to predation. Um, but, but a lot of them just hang in that distinctive coil, I think you've probably seen a number of times, from a vertical stem, and they'll just sit there waiting in ambush. And they'll sit there the entire night, um, often in conditions that are, you know, you'd think a bit prohibitive for, for ambush and successful capture of prey. I remember... 
one time many, many years ago, I was in the Macarath Range, and it was June, which is the cold season. And the Macarath Range is reasonably high. I think I was about 500 metres above sea level and um, was surveying through, through the forest and saw a, a green python, you know, perched in the typical posture. And it was really, really cold. The, the area where I was surveying was the, was, the, was the spine of a ridge, and it was a very windy night, and the, the wind was coming up and, and flowing across the, across the ridge, and so obviously there was a lot of wind chill. And I, I had the, the temperature gun on me and the thermometer, which I could insert into the cloaca to read the temperature. And, and from memory, the, the snake was 9 degrees Celsius, which is very, very cold. And to the touch, it was, it was very, very cold. Um, and these are chondros which people think, you know, can't, can't withstand mild fluctuations in temperature. And this thing actually had the, um, the, the nous to go down and hunt. When I, when I touched it, it slowly turned around because obviously they are ectothermic. And um, it had very, very little energy. And I just thought, what if, what if, what if a mammal did run in front of it? Would it actually be able... To, to hit it and strike it. And then if it did, would it, would it be able to climb the tree to the top of the canopy, which it would need to do to adequately thermoregulate um, in order to, dige- to digest the prey? And it was really fascinating sort of insight about what they're doing. And I think the snake probably didn't think about it too hard. It, it was warm because it was up in the canopy um, during the day, and so it came down at night and then got chilled. But... It's it's all instinct, and so the instinct to hunt is probably greater than the than the the cognitive ability to realise that even if you do catch a prey item, you're not going to be able to di- digest it, and eventually it could ferment in your gut, and you could die. <laughs> so these things for, are you know really you know, really hard. Our, what for our Sorry, listeners in, in the US, in the US, nine degrees Celsius is about fifty degrees Fahrenheit, which is a temperature that. Uh, I don't think anybody could imagine that their captive bred chondros could uh, could tolerate or or thrive in. Mm. Well, f- physiological studies on snakes in general show that you can put them in the freezer and you can um, take them down to zero degrees, or not not quite zero because you don't want their blood to freeze and so on. But take them down to say two degrees and then pull them out. And as long as they can actually reach um, a reasonable temperature again that day then it will actually have no adverse effects on them. Um, mm. And so it's pr- probably something that people don't understand. I don't know I don't know why a lot of chondros stress and so on when it comes to temperature and, and captivity in the US because, I, as I understand, the temperatures don't fluctuate much for you guys from about 26 degrees Celsius, perhaps up, up to 40, or sorry, to 30. Um, and so I, don't, I really don't know what's... You know what's causing those those animals to stress out? Perhaps a, a combination of factors, but certainly they can they can tolerate it if need be. Hmm. Yeah, I think they're pampered. Maybe that's what it is. They're so used to being pampered here that any change in, in that causes them stress, or you know, it could just be they're stressed by being in a box too. Um, that that yeah. could have something to do with it, um, not being able to to move when they want to and, and, and explore and that, that could have some, some explanation, but I'm only guessing, of course. Sure. I was stress. Yes. I think stress is a big thing. A lot of it will be, will be related to stress. I think there are also issues to do with overfeeding. I think I've, you know, relayed some results of 
how heavy wild chondros were, often based on their length, relative to their length, and you know the sort of numbers that that I was finding that were over over different weight thresholds, and you know the the animals in the states are you know a, a lot larger than they'd ever be in the wild, and that probably just like it does in human beings presents health issues. Right? Can do you do you have that information with you now, Daniel? That you could share that I found that fascinating. Uh, the numbers you were you were talking about at ICAS with uh, weight and length, and for, for those of us in the states, uh, the if most people here in the states they weigh their snakes, the people that weigh their snakes, uh, I guess the rule of thumb is you know male should be you know 400 grams for to to breed, and then female should be. A uh, thousand grams or eight hundred grams, depending on who you talk to. And then Daniel had his numbers, and he he was talking about that at ICAST. Do you have those numbers, Daniel? Yeah, just I'm at the computer now. Just bear with me two seconds while sure, I no run problem. through the slideshow. Um, I'll see if I can multitask and talk <laughs> while I'm doing it. I'm not usually very good at that, but um, but I think from memory, our studies in our dissections, which look at your maturity. Uh, from memory, I think the the males were reaching sexual maturity before they reached 100 grams. Um, females, obviously, larger. And, and that's also a tricky thing because that's physiological maturity, but actually when an, when an animal reproduces could be could be a different thing. So even in the world, you know, they're sexually able to reproduce, they delay it for reasons. Okay, so I've... I've brought that up here. So from more than one, it says from more than a thousand wild animals that I, I recorded mass for, from all localities combined, um, there were only eight individuals that were larger than 1,000 grams or one gram, and that that's 2.2 pounds. Um, wow. Out of those 1,000, only 18 females were larger than 700 grams, um, and only 17 males were larger than 500 grams. That's a, a very, very small proportion of of those individuals that were actually actually quite large. And and, and, right. if, and if it was true that they were only able to breed at those large sizes, then you just couldn't have viable populations because only such a small proportion of that population is is able to reach that size. Daniel, do you have an idea of of what the normal maybe clutch size would be in in chondros in the wild? I mean, how many eggs are they laying? Yeah, I've got another paper. Um, won't try and find it now. Um, from memory, I think it's seven wild clutches I've, I've recorded, and I think the average is 14 from memory. So I, I think green pythons certainly aren't reproducing every year, um, and so what they're doing is, is building up enough condition so that they can actually you know, produce quite a bit of output um, at one time. They could even reproduce only only once every three years in the wild. We we just don't know, and it, it will obviously sure. vary between individuals based on how much how much condition they can put on in the intervening period. And buddy, what would you think? Just knowing you you know the chondro community in 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 the U.S. much better than I do. How often are people breeding their female chondros? Are they breeding them every year? Two out of three years? Three out of four years? What? 
What's your sense? Um, most people that I know do will do two years back to back and then a year off. Um, and you know, some of the more conservative keepers will do every other year. Um, but they also seem to keep their animals closer to what Daniel is reporting for sizes of wild types. So, you know, maybe the female 700 grams, um, 600 grams. Um, so, you know, that that's what I know from the people that have shared with me. Of course, I can't speak for everyone, but um, and that's I've I've done that too. I've done back-to-back breeding years um, and then given a year off. And it's, uh, you know, I think Rico one time had said that, uh, I think Vladimir at, at Bushmaster um, or whatever the, the farm is called there, whatever their name is, it, they did, I think they had a female go eight eight seasons in a row. Mm. So, but I, I definitely think that, you know, what Daniel's numbers are showing and what we see in with our cap, what we, the guidelines we use for our captive animals, um, I think is is way over what they actually need to have. And I think one of the problems with chondros is that people get these animals and um, expect them to have such high demands and find that they don't. And they actually can be a little bored with their animals. And the best way they know to interact with their animals is to feed them and feed them a lot. Feed them. Um, yeah. So, you know, and I think that leads to, you know, like Daniel said, same thing with people. It leads to long-term health problems. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's kind of um, amazing to see. I always, I always know what's going to happen. I always get these questions. How much does a female have to weigh in order to breed? And I always know that they're going to tell me that snake is, you know, above the magic number of, you know, 1,000 grams or whatever. But they always say, and it's two years old. Um, and I always try to, to advise them that, you know, you're feeding way too much. And even though it's at the alleged, you know, supposed 1,000-gram magic mark for females, um, doesn't mean that it's okay to breed that animal and that, you know, the conditions may not be perfect for that animal. It's probably, you know, been overfed and, you know, it, it could cause problems. Um, the clutch size you have is interesting, Daniel, because um, I would say, just doing a quick tally in my head, my average clutch size is about 18, which, you know, I, I'm assuming that the more you feed, maybe the clutch sizes will be bigger, which might explain why my clutch sizes are, are probably bigger. Uh, my clutch numbers for an average are, are probably bigger. Um, do you so, know, Daniel, by chance, what the guys in the farm are getting for clutch sizes at any of the farms? Yeah, I've got a. I was gonna. Um, Vladimir is a, a good friend of mine, and I was was toying up for a while there when I was less busy, um, writing a small sort of dingy paper on on contrary production sign because Vladimir has compiled a large a large data set of reproduction, a number of slugs, a number of juveniles that actually survive, and those sort of things, and so. I can't remember what the sample size is, but it's several hundred, and the average clutch size was 17 viable eggs. Um, I, but it ranged from a minimum of about six to a maximum of 35 or something. But 17 was the, the average. Did you say 55? As the no, sorry. The large end of... 35. 35. Yeah. Thirty-five. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, that's, you know, that, that's, that's a huge clutch sounds, of anything. Yeah, but you know, uh, uh, we've heard of clutches in you know in captivity into the high twenties and low thirties here. Right. Sure. Yep. So, you know, obviously, Daniel. So, you, you know, with the the females that you found in the wild were they actually on clutches? So you've actually found females in the wild that were <laughs> that were on clutches that you know were wrapped around eggs and incubating them. I'd love to lie to you and say that I had found them myself, but no, I've been taken <laughs> taken to them by villagers, mainly, mainly okay. in Biak. Um, and then others have been been gravid, gravid animals that have um, laid eggs in captivity several days after being captured. Okay. Um, mm. I'm curious about the animals you've observed in in the wild. Um, where exactly did the females nest? Were they on the ground? Were they in tree just, hollows? They're just on the ground under sort of matty vegetation. Okay. We're just so under, similar to what you yeah. might find a carpet python. Yeah, same. sure, sure. Okay. The same with scrub pythons and, and all those sort of things. They, um, you know, people thought for a long time they might they might lay in the epiphytic ferns, the, the staghorn ferns and so on, the epiphytes up in the trees or in tree hollows. But a few people, I know Rob Heinsen, David Wilson's supervisor, is, is a bird guy and he studied eclectus parrots in Iron Range. And so he spent a lot of time um, up in the trees looking in tree hollows where the, where the parrots, um, not only eclectus but the palm cockatoos, lay their eggs. And he said he found a lot of canopy goannas, the Varanus Keith Horni, but never found a green python in a tree hollow and never found <laughs> eggs. And, and it makes sense because, you know, a small juvenile green python is 30 centimetres and, the, you know, it's pencil thin. It, they'd have a hard time climbing down from several of these trees and so the mother obviously wants to increase the chances of survival for her offspring. So they, I think they're probably nesting um, in those sun-dappled areas where the juveniles eventually um, start to hang out. I have found in Australia also a couple, on a couple of occasions um, juveniles, a bunch of them together in a, in a small area, and they all have the, the moist umbilical suture um, and the little umbilical cords sticking out of the, the bottom of them, which says to me they've hatched you know, within the last couple of days. And I've caught around my hands and knees under fallen logs and vines and stinking trees and all sorts of things to try and find the nest, but never actually found them. But but I assume somewhere in that vicinity is where the female was um, sitting on the clutch. Well, that's, uh, that's the first I've heard of, of someone actually seeing a, uh, a female incubating eggs in the wild. That's, thank you for sharing that with that's, us. So they're, they were on the ground. That's really, really neat, really neat. Yeah, that's mm. incredible. Daniel, do you have a, it's, it's, a sense of of the lifespan of chondros in the wild? How long do they live? Um, it's a good question. David Wilson put a number of pit tags and microchips into animals he was studying, and I was able to find from memory 11 of those individuals a number of years later. And from memory, it put those animals at greater than 10 years of age, um, I, I suspect, I suspect not many, 
are reaching 10 years of age. I'd say the average lifespan is somewhere between 7 and 10, um, with, a, with a, you know, a distribution skewed towards the 7. But some of them could obviously you know, live to 15, perhaps 20 years. If they, they're doing really well. Ultimately, parasites and predation take a, a toll on snakes. And then just general things like heart attack and cancer and other things that people can hold and come down with them too. What, what is their major predator I, um, in the wild? Um, I must assume, given the the coloration of the animals, that it's it's a bird of prey, either birds or particularly raptors, something like a, a grey goshawk is a small, um, you know, hawk or or raptor. Fascinating information, Daniel. So, so you think primarily it's raptors? What about uh, predation from other reptiles like uh, the monitor lizards? Do you think that they're uh, they have uh, much uh, effect on uh, chondros once they uh, get into adulthood? Um, I don't think they have a huge effect. There's there's been sort of the one record of predation on um, on a green python has been of a, a Varanus indicus or the mangrove monitor which David Wilson recorded okay. I've um, I've done a number of experiments in blastocene and also red, green and yellow scenes the marks um, to look at on them and also set up cameras and birds are the main things that do that do the plasticine, so it's fair to assume that birds are also hitting the, the real animals. Things like pigs, monster lizards, um, well, it's, you know, species of reptile, perhaps metal snakes. Now, they probably take small numbers of green pythons. Um, you know, you'd be naive to assume that it's green, and then it's probably not a, a huge a huge contributor to the overall predation impact, and I guess I guess it must be must be birds and all the information that we know. Okay, interesting, interesting. What else should we know, or might we want to know about uh, for the wild green tree python? Um, yeah, like I said, they're relatively boring. They don't move a lot, so. It's it's not uncommon for you to to see a green python in an area, and um, it'll be hunting close to the ground during the day, uh, sorry at night, and then during the day it'll head up about two meters above where it was hunting, and then it'll just shuttle day and night it'll go back to those two locations hunting, resting, hunting, resting, hunting, resting, maybe do that for a week, and then they'll move five meters away from the last spot and do the same thing for another week. And um, when when they get a prey item, they'll often head up into the canopy so that they can thermoregulate and get access to sunlight. Um, what else to know about them? Oh, I guess I guess that's about all. They're they're a lot easier to find in the wet season than the dry season, and that's perhaps why people have thought that for a long time that they were rare because it's very hot and wet, and areas are inaccessible during the wet season, and so. Not many scientists or naturalists in general can get into these areas. Certainly not if they're they're worried about getting you know leeches and and their <laughs> their, their, their feet wet. And so 
yeah, most most of my work has been during the wet season, just because you know I think one my best ever was twelve individuals in one night um, in the wet season, whereas wow. you can you can you know trudge around the forest for two weeks during the dry season and and not see anything. Just where where, where, you, where are they? Where are they in the dry season? I mean, why can't you find them in the dry season? Presum- presumably up in the trees. I see. Mm. And what, as you, I don't know if they do it in captivity, probably to a lesser degree, but wild, um, wild males go off feed during the during the cooler cooler months and when they're mating, and so they don't come down. And obviously, I'm searching for them at night when they're they're down near the ground hunting. And if they if they've gone off feed, then they're not coming to the ground. Hunting. And that's probably why um, a lot of them are uh, are not visible during that time. I see. What's the temperament like of the wild chondros you've encountered? Are they uh, are they bitey, uh, docile, depends, or each snake's depends. individual? Yeah, there's, there's a bit of the individuality thing, but it really depends on, on what locality you're going to. So all of the southern localities, your Aru's, um, yeah, and I, I hate this term, but your Meraukis, and I'll just make the disclaimer that Meraukis is a big woodland area and there are absolutely no chondros anywhere near Meraukis. It's just an export, you know, location. But um, in Australia also, the chondros are really, really docile. Among the most docile snakes I've ever worked with, you can just walk up and even if they're sitting there hunting in a a menacing striking position, you can just walk straight up to them and, you know, grab them mid-body and and pluck them and, you know, carry on. And they'll, they'll very, very rarely bite. I think I've only had one bite out of hundreds of animals. Um... You know, animals from Sarong and Jayapura um, are different. They're, I guess it's sort of 50-50 in my experience. Wild individuals, they, you know, 50% of them will will hit you, and and others will will be, will be docile. And then you have the infamous um, Biak locality, which is funny because, <laughs> you know, a lot of people talked about it, and I I remember going to Biak for the first time and thinking, ah. All these pet keepers are full of crap. Don't know what they're talking about. They, they can't be that that temperamental. And then I finally got there, and it was a, a shocking experience because I, you know, was ble- was bleeding from multiple holes in my body from the little buggers. They just, yeah, they love to bite for some reason. And and, and I suppose it's it's a complete contrast to the the southern the southern species where. Most of them do buy. You only find the odd few that that won't have a go at you when you when you capture them. Mm-hmm. So so the the biaks even on the island of biak uphold their their reputation. So here in the states, everyone says you know if you know, if you're looking for a chondro and you're more interested in maybe interacting with it and handling it, you may want to steer away from biaks because they tend to be more temperamental and um, you know, can give you a bite or two. Um, so yeah. that's great to see that they have the same reputation on their own island. Um, Daniel, what about, uh, we're getting ready to go, where the show can go on, but real quick, uh, if people wanted to reach out to you and send you an email before we go to the recorded session, if people are listening live, how could they, you know, if they wanted to drop you an email or maybe get a copy of, of some of your research? Do you have an email address yeah. people could, could contact you? Sure. Um, you got a pen? I do. It's d dot 
Natush. No, sorry. Daniel. D A N I E L. Dot Natush. N A T U S C H. At Sydney. S Y D N E Y. Dot E D U. Dot A U. Great. Thank you, Daniel, for sharing that. Um, I wanted to ask you a question, and it's more along the personal lines. Um, and you shared shared some photos at ICAS of uh, well, you shared all your condor photos, which were spectacular. But then near the end, you shared some photos of what it takes to get these shots that you were sharing with us. What's the most precarious situation you've been in personally? chasing around these green snakes? Huh. <laughs> a good question. Um, obviously, the hardest part about being in these areas, you know, I, I grew up in the bush, and so I'm fairly adept or comfortable in remote situations. It's always the human factor that is the unknown factor. Um, you know, there are issues, particularly in Papua, because... I don't know if you know much of the history, but um, the Dutch moved out in the 70s. Basically, the Indonesians pushed the Dutch out because Irian Jaya was a, a Dutch colony um, and took over over Papua. Papua Papuan people actually wanted independence, um, but Indonesia didn't give it to them, mainly because it's, it's very resource-rich. It has the world's largest gold and copper mine, among other things. Um, and so it's obviously a, a good strategic thing for the Indonesian government to, to keep hold of, but that didn't go down too well with the, the Papuan people. And so they formed a, a militia group called the OPM, which is like a free Papua movement. And um, and so there, there is a lot of tension between Papuans and, and, and Indonesians. And we saw we saw people gunned down in the street. Um, wow. Police, policemen opening fire into peaceful peaceful protests and, and killing people, um, OPM retaliating and killing Indonesian women and children, just indiscriminately opening fire into crowds. So that, that's part of the the other thing about it is you know people can be living normally day to day and then these things happen once in a blue moon. And I guess if you spend enough time there, you'll you'll eventually come across something like that. And, and I should quickly add that that's part of the problem also because, you know, there are human rights violations going on there and who really cares about um, the conservation of wildlife and in particular snakes. Snakes are animals right. that most of the world, world hate. And so why would anyone give a crap about snakes when there are people dying, um, not on a daily basis, but, you know, every now and then? And you know, there's extreme poverty and so on, and so it's a it's a funny thing. There are um, what probably the most precarious situation, which happened more than once, but um, Papuans will often cut a tree down and across a road, and then they'll sit there for a long time, perhaps a couple of days, cutting it up. Um, and then you come along on your bike or in a car, mainly on a on a motorbike because we couldn't afford a car, but um come along on the motorbike and they would they would want to tax you for using the road and basically the the thing is there's a tree in the road we're doing you a service by cutting it up and therefore you have to pay us even though they cut down the tree in the first place um 
and uh, we were driving along one day, actually on the way to Lere, um, which is it's on the, the northern side of the of the Highlands, and um, and we're driving along this this tiny little dirt track. It's a crappy little dirt track. Perhaps it was even raining on the motorbike with Jess on the back and me on the front and our pack full of gear and our spotlights and so on. And um, and these guys jump out of the bush and their eyes are bloodshot, perhaps drunk or you know high on betel nut or whatever it could have been. And they're they're wielding machetes and they're they're shouting they're shouting at us to stop and so on and. I've got Jess on the back, who's a, a reasonably good-looking girl, and you have no idea what's what's going to happen if you do stop. So you just have to, um, you know, pump the accelerator on the motorbike and and hope for the best. Close your eyes and hope for the best. And on a number of occasions, nothing happened. But I suppose all it would take for them was to to hold out a machete, and and they could do you some serious damage. But I'd I'd hate to know, you know, what would happen if you if you did stop on those occasions. But but in fairness. Our experiences in Guinea were, were relatively mild compared to a lot of other people. Common sense and a, a good, good ability to travel and laugh and make friends go a long way because there are a lot of fantastic people there. It's just, you know, you hear the stories of the, the one or two that can ruin it and, and turn turn most people away for good. Right. Yep. Yep. Like like everywhere in, in the world, unfortunately. Exactly. So, um, what does the future look like for chondros in in their native territory? Yeah, like I said, they're um, I think they're they're relatively secure. I would I would love to see Indonesia implement a, a program where actually legalised, um, well regulated collection. But but as as you can appreciate based on what I just said, there are there are more important issues to do with with human rights before they start. Thinking too much about the um, wildlife in Papua because of just the, some of the things I've described as a as a politically sensitive area, and so I don't know if if anything will happen anytime soon. But ideally, I'd love to see a, a sustainable use program set up where a small amount of of money they get from the sale of wild caught chondros goes back to local communities, etc., and and provides greater incentives for habitat conservation and those sort of things. Um, because it's not going to have any any lasting effect on on wild populations of these these species, and it can you know give you guys and and other other interested people around the world a, an opportunity to get some of the the rare localities or micro localities or whatever anyone likes to call them, and um, <laughs> it could be a, a, a win win for everybody, um, right? With with no no adverse impact on the species, and perhaps. Um, Actually, provide a, a conservation benefit in the long term because these people will actually um, sustainably harvest and, and maintain sufficient populations in the wild instead of you know not giving a crap and cutting down all the forest and and screwing the populations anyway. Right. Well, what does the future hold for you, Daniel? Um. Yeah, like I said, I'm not doing a lot with Converse anymore. I am. Um, a bit of enforcement stuff, sort of looking at methods to, I suppose, fairly sophisticated methods to differentiate between captive breed and wild caught animals. It is coming, um, not for the everyday um, keeper, obviously, but for enforcement agencies of, of various governments. Um, I won't elaborate it, on it too much because I want to give it the best chance of success before everyone sort of finds out. Um, 
and then then myself i'm i'm doing a lot of work on on other species of pythons like i said the the scrub pythons and blackbeds and carpets and so on i right behind me here in the office i have three scrub pythons a carpet two spotted pythons a slaty gray and a brown tree snake sitting in bags which i've i've got to measure today um <laughs> nice. and so yeah it's a, a life filled with snakes and and more adventure which is is how i like it it's it's hard to tell what will what will happen in the future right what about uh will you be uh will there be any more papers in the near future from you yeah so i'll um i've seen a couple which perhaps you don't know about which have been been published and also there's a one which I wrote a long time ago, which is coming out soon in the, the Journal of Herpetology. That journal takes a very long time to review and um, and publish its works. <laughs> so even though a lot of the data was collected in about 2007, it's only being published in 2014, which isn't exactly okay. a great turnaround. But um, yeah, so there's that. And then there's a number of papers. I don't think any more papers on green pythons, but then there's a number of papers on scrubbies and carpets and all sorts of other things, which will be really interesting. Doing a lot of radio telemetry at the moment. So following around a couple of, well, not, not a couple, a good number of, of scrub pythons, some of which are, are pushing on the, the four to five meter mark, which is interesting, and getting some great insights into what they're doing and the habitats they're using and what they're eating and those sort of things. Now, you were saying that the scrubs in Australia are actually pretty docile in the wild. Is, is that what you're? Is that true? Yeah. So <laughs> to further complicate the story, it looks like we could have two species of python in Australia. One really Morelia, Somalia Morelia, whatever you call them these days. Um, King Horneye, which occurs down around Tully, Innisfail, Cairns, and, and those sort of areas in the wet tropics, the Dane tree. And then Morelia amethystina, which occurs in southern New Guinea and also occurs up where we are in in Cape York. And okay. the, the Morelia king horni, the one down south, has got a, a, a pretty bad temperature. Not all individuals, and the large ones tend to be a bit better than the small ones, but um, you know they, they can be pretty aggressive, whereas the ones up here are just big puppy dogs. You can walk up to them, and even if it's a, a three-meter snake, you can just put your hand underneath its head and pick it up and put it in a bag, and yeah, they're, they're really nice. I get bitten every now and then, but it's probably because I'm stupid and less to do with the, <laughs> the snake being a prick. <laughs> right, right. That, that's fantastic. Uh, a lot of people here wouldn't have thought that that would be the case. That's uh, a wild-caught scrub uh, just picking you up and being rather docile. Yeah, in, in my experience, you know, nine out of ten snakes of, of all species are fantastically docile. You can just walk walk up and pick them up. And there, there are individuals which will have a go at you, and there are certain species, for example, slaty grey snakes, which are, are a colubrid we get here, which, you know, they're guaranteed to bite you every single time. But the vast majority <laughs> of pythons are, you know, really, really, really tame. And you, you couldn't say that about any other animals. You know, the cute and cuddly koalas and possums and other things which which people love if you catch one of those in the wild it'll it'll tear your face off right absolutely <laughs> that's an excellent point mm. very good okay uh bill did you have any more questions for daniel no no i daniel okay. what a 
what a fantastic opportunity uh, for you to come on and uh, enlighten Buddy and myself and our listeners. Uh, this show was everything that I, I thought it was going to be, and I, I know speaking for Buddy, we really appreciate your time. Absolutely. No, not at all. We'd love to have you back. Yes. Yeah, fantastic. We'll look forward to it, and thank you both very much for, for giving me the opportunity to rant about things that I also enjoy. <laughs> Well, thank you. We appreciate your time, and uh, you know we'd love to do it. We'd love to have you back on. I know that we're going to have a lot of uh, emails and you know just people with more questions. And how come you didn't ask about this? And uh, or you know could you could you could you have uh, asked it in a different way that maybe would have incorporated a different answer? So we'll have to have. Uh, Daniel Natouche, round two, uh, sometime in the near future. Yes, absolutely. All right, Daniel, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, Good talking to you, my friend, and hopefully I can talk to you soon. No worries. You boys take care. Daniel, Daniel, we'll see you at ICAST 2 whenever Buddy decides uh, to to put that on. No worries. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) <laughs> All right. All right, Daniel. Have Thanks. a great day. Thanks, Daniel. See ya. Bye. Bye. Hey, buddy. Are you still there? Yes, I am still here. Uh, I guess before we officially sign off, um, a couple things that we wanted to get to uh, before Daniel came on. We need to give a shout-out or, or at least plug Daniel Newman's Facebook page, USCB yes. Chondro Classifieds. It's uh, yes, United States. Yes, it's it's his Facebook page. Uh, uh, you know, USCB Chondro Classifieds, and um, he's going to be uh, moderating that site very carefully. Uh, again, just another tool along with the MVF Classifieds uh, page that may be uh, new keepers or or even existing keepers uh, to green trees can get on and get a. Uh, just a, a, a leg up on getting an animal that's going to be uh, backed by a certified uh, breeder here in the United States, uh, get some support, and um, you know, hopefully have every chance of, of being a successful first chondro for somebody. So I wanted to throw yeah. that out there. Yeah, it's a, it's a great idea by David. To uh, there's a lot of a lot of green tree people. Green Tree Python pages on Facebook, but I think David's is the only one that is specifically geared towards uh, condors that were captured, born and bred in the U.S. And it's it's a good effort, you know. I think uh, you know, David's right there with, with a lot of the other folks on the MVF. They they want to reach out and they want to they want to do some education, and they want people to start off with these snakes the, the right way, so that way. Uh, you you'll want more of them because trust me, once you have one and you do well with it, um, <laughs> somehow you wind up with twenty, right, Bill? <laughs> well, yeah, and you know that kind of reminds me. You know, our friends over at Morelia Python Radio, they have uh, they are now referring to you as uh, the crack dealer of chondros. You know that? <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Yeah, they are. Um, it's, because you so graciously gifted a chondro to uh, our good friend Owen McIntyre, 
And, uh, you know, you you basically told them the first one was free, and, you know, as you expected, uh, a couple weeks later, you know, he needed another taste, so to speak. And and from my understanding is is he he did come back to the sugar daddy. And yes, he did. Got, he got his second chondro, is that correct? That is true. That is true. Yes. Um, on, and I really wanted the master to... Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ellen has been the holdout forever. And yes. um, last year, my plan was, if he passed out at Carpet Fest, I was going to put a chondro in his pocket. That way he <laughs> would wake up and go home with it. Um, but they, they left a little early last year. Eric wasn't feeling well. So my plan didn't happen. So he was on yeah. my list as someone who was getting getting a chondro. And sometimes you have to do that with people. Um, you have to yeah. give them something for them to realize how yeah. how neat it really is. And um, so, yeah, so he then, um, he was in search of a female. And at the time, I didn't have any available. The one that I did have that he was kind of looking at was uh, someone had won it. And then they backed out. And I said, Ellen, you know, this female's available. They backed out. So, you know, if you want her, she's yours. So, of course, Ellen, Ellen's a smart man. I don't need to tell you what he did next. Yes. Um, yes. So, yeah. Well, he's made already, it. You know, they're they're, they're making made plans to how clear. he can. <laughs> I love ahead, it. I, I, I love it. I love to see the fever. I love to see the fever <laughs> get passed on to somebody else. I'm, you know, um, he made it very clear that this was going to be, now that he's got, you know, a pair, that uh, he, he was he was done with the Condros. Right. So, yeah, we'll we'll You're see how long done. that lasts. You're, You're never, never done. done. You're and, never done. Uh, and and the other host, uh, Eric Burke, he he has had chondros before, but he's got right. the fever now too. He's just looking for the right one. So right now, the first carpet fest that they hosted, I took down a biak that I had produced, and uh, Eric bought it. Eric Eric was an auction. They were doing a fundraiser for US Arc, and I donated it for that and. And Eric outbid everyone, and he went home with a chondro. Now, he traded okay. that chondro to Zach Biaz. Oh, so that shit. yellow, that really nice yellow, yellow Biak that's probably going to stay like 90% yellow. Um, yeah, Eric traded that for a, I don't know, a, 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 a carpet python or something. And uh, Zach could probably tell us a little bit more. But, um, but now I think he wants them again. So... But yes. it's good for us. Yes, I know. Yes, it is good for us. It's good. It's good for the uh, the entire community because. Um, Agreed. Yeah, I like. I like to see those guys getting on board. I'm but, always uh, amazed how these. I mean. Go ahead. These, these carpet guys, you know, they're like you know, like Eric and and <laughs> Ellen. They they love the carpets and they love the scrubs, and you know they have every type of carpet you can imagine. Every subspecies that's available, they have it, and they they have the morphs, but they don't have chondros. I'm a, I'm amazed that they're the, to make that leap is so hard for a lot of people. Well, listen, you're you're talking about my people, okay? I, I mean, am. That's the way that I that's the way that I was two years ago. Right. And you've and, seen the light. Uh, <laughs> I've seen the light, and uh, Owen has seen the light. And um, it's just such a natural progression. They're uh, 
they're both, you know, phenomenal uh, species of animals, and they're they're very similar in a lot of respects. And um, I'm excited for both those guys because I, I do think they have chondro fever. Right. Well, <clears throat> Jason Balin, you're next. <laughs> That's our next project, Jason Balin. That's our next project. <clears throat> I'll tell you who else. So, we got a couple more on the list. Moana McAdams, Howard Ray. Oh, yeah. Well, Howard not, had a condor. That... Did he? He bought a condor from me, but I'm not sure whether he still has it or not. Okay. I, I, yeah. I certainly haven't seen any pictures of it. We need, yeah, to, uh, we, we, need to... we need to revisit that. We need to find out what's going on, why he doesn't have at least one, if not more. And uh, Behoff will, will be a personal project of mine that I will get uh, involved in chondros as well. Good, good. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're keeping Morelia, I mean, it just makes sense. You need to have a, at least one chondro. Um, yeah. But of course, once you make that, once you purchase that one chondro, it's. Uh, I hate to say this, you're probably going to figure out which carpets can leave. So you can uh, <laughs> divide those cages in two. Because That's when Owen exactly was here, one right. of the things he commented on was how small they were as adults um, yeah. compared You're to right. his it's a, big, yeah. big it's animals a two, he had. It's a, two, it's a two for one, no doubt about it. It's a, right. it's a four foot by two foot cage versus a two foot by two foot cage. Right. We were looking at um, six month old chondros when he was here that and uh or five month old chondros and you know like that's a five month old chondro and like yeah he's like that's the size of a hatchling jungle carpet i'm like yeah i know (laughs) so you know it's uh you know when people see i think people uh, the other thing too is people expect chondros to be big they've never seen them in person i guess because we we crop the photo and we make it real big um, sure. So they're expecting, a, you know, a 12-foot snake, I think, at times. Um, and when they, they see them in person, they're like, that's how big they are. Um, they're, they're kind of shocked at how small they, they are, So, which is a good thing. Yeah. And as Daniel yeah, has proven, no. you don't need to be that big to, to yeah. uh, lead a happy condor life. Yeah, they should probably uh, even be smaller than yeah, where, we, I agree. where we keep them. But, uh, do uh, do you keep weights on your chondros, Bill? I have n- I have never weighed one of my chondros. Okay. And and you know what? To be honest, I, you know you know that I keep carpets and ball pythons. I I've never weighed a carpet python. I have weighed some of my ball pythons, but uh, I just haven't found it really to be uh, really very useful. Right. Yeah, well, I, uh, well, I did, and, and you weigh yours, or, or what's the no. uh, what's the rationale for, for weighing them? I don't weigh them. Um, I I I used to just to see like where they were, and um, I guess the rationale was, well, it weighs a certain weight, and I guess I can breed it now, or I can sex it. You know, a lot of people use the hundred gram mark for uh, sexing a chondro, one year and a hundred gram. I kind of uh-huh. use the just how big they look to me personally, um, as far as the sexing, and I don't really weigh animals. Um, I used to keep a lot of numbers on them just to see like how big the females were and 
you know, how much after they laid a clutch, how much they weighed, what the clutch weighed. Used to do all that stuff, but I don't. I really don't keep it because I was keeping this information, but I wasn't really doing much with it. So I figured, right? right. I, I know. What, I think no. I know what a, a good size chondro is, and one they're ready to breed, and that type of stuff. So I really don't weigh. I do. I get a lot of requests from people that are interested in purchasing the snake. They may ask me to weigh it, the snake for them, and I always oblige them. And I always ask because, like you know. You know what, what exactly are you doing with the information? And most people don't know. <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough, most people don't give me a good answer. Um, but know, I think it's, they just, it's, it's just a verification process. You know, it's funny. It's I guess maybe it's a cultural thing. I'll, I'll have people ask me all the time to weigh a ball python baby, whether it's a month old, six months old, or a year old. I've never had anybody ask me what's the weight of the carpet. Python, you know, they want to know how old it is, when it was hatched, pictures of parents, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. I've never had anybody ask me to weigh a carpet python before I sent it. So, maybe, I don't know, I maybe it's cultural. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, as long as they're eating, they're healthy. Uh, right. You know, that's, that's, that's the most important thing, I think. I agree. I agree. So I guess I have to go back and listen to a few episodes of Morelia Python Radio. That's what you're telling me. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I'm behind, you know, I don't see how they do it. They do that show every week. I don't see how they how they do it, but uh, good information on that show. And uh, they, I've noticed that uh, they're, they're leaning more towards Condros. <laughs> Seems like uh, every month, you know, they... They've done the roundtable. Uh, they've had they've had David on. I know they've reached out to Gary to to do a show. So you know, I mean, it's Morelia. It's Morelia Python. That that includes us. Right. That includes the Condro guys. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe we'll have to do it. Maybe we'll schedule an episode in the future and have them all with us. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, that'd be great. That would be fun. That would be fun. That would be a fun fun thing to do. So um, our next show is going to be in June, and Bill and I haven't set a date yet, but uh, Trooper Walsh is slated to come on. So no, I can't wait for that. that. Are you are you kidding? Yeah. Are you kidding me? <clears throat> That's going to be how, fun. How did how did you nail that down? Um, I emailed him <laughs> and said I'm doing a, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing this radio podcast thing, and would you come on and. And, and participate. And um, he said, I would love to do that. He, he said, the only thing is I'm not much on technology. And I, you know, I explained to him, you don't have to be. Um, you, you call into the show and you talk to us. And, you know, I told him we would provide him with an outline. And, um, but I think it will be, be an interesting show. Do I have to say, um, just my personal experience with Trooper, he's not very wordy. So... You know, it might be a quick show, but it'll be good to have him on just just to talk about the traditions that he has started or did start with within the Condor community that still persists today. He was uh, big on keeping very good records, including mm-hmm. pedigrees on animals. Um, right. And one of the things that still happened is uh, Condor Fest. He 
he kind of inspired this community uh, feeling about keeping chondros. And um, so the the last chondro fest we had a couple of years ago, I mean, Trooper was there with us hanging out. And uh, the funny thing was is that uh, my friend Tim Morris took all the research papers that Trooper had ever done and uh, made two or three copies and had them bound at uh, one of the staples. So he had this uh, bound, voluminous book of research papers that Trooper uh, had done and, and also just in general articles on green tree pythons and talking about the Komodo dragons when he was at the National Zoo. And, and Tim had all this stuff archived, and he took it to Staples. He had it bound, and we brought it, and we, we auctioned them off. And Trooper actually bought one copy because he was like, I've always wanted all this <laughs> right. stuff in one location. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't have it, huh? <laughs> so, so he, yeah, so he, he came up and he, he bought that and hung out with us for a while. But it should be a good show. And, you know, we could, we could yeah. talk to him about a few things. And um, it, it'll be fun. It'll be fun to have Trooper I've, on. I've told you, you know, from the get-go, from, uh, you know, when uh, Barry and and Christian Stewart and uh, a couple other people introduced me to Condros. Uh, you know, really one of the top three great things about owning them is the community. It's not the right. animals. It's the, peop- it's the people involved in the Condro community. Um, you, know, you know, it's just it's, it's something special and something we should cherish, something we should propagate, and something that, uh, you know, we need, we need to keep that foremost in – and new keepers' experiences is let them come into our community. Let us let us let us foster them, and you know, let them experience just all the great things it is about being in this community. Right, agreed. We need, you know, we the Condor community need more younger people. Um, you know, I've said this before. I'm not the future of Condor keeping. Um, I, I'm the now, and my now is probably you know going to be over sooner than I've than a blink of an eye and we need we need younger people to come in and and pick up the torch um and uh be active members and you know be involved in the community i think you know we really need to recruit them and and bring them in and mentor them not only just in condor keeping but on you know being in the condor community a lot of people don't you know what i see on MVF and in the Condor community doesn't really happen much with with other things in life in general. I mean, it's uh, it's really neat the the friendships I've made that have been you know, few of them have been lifelong, and um, yep, it's it's, Absolutely. it's a neat feeling. It's a neat feeling when you. And I can, think. The, I, I was going to say I think the great thing is is that I don't know if easier is the right word, but it, it seems like as things have progressed that keeping chondros um, is uh, is easier for the you know you know the the basic keeper in other words you don't have to be a uh, a keeper of of a bunch of different animals with a bunch of experience to successfully keep chondros and that's what's going to grow our community it's the people it's the more um, passive or you know it's not their life's passion like yours and mine, you know, to keep reptiles. It's somebody that can keep one chondro and keep it along with their, you know, their corn snake and their ball and their carpet 
you know, as long as we can get those people in the community, that that's what's going to grow the community. Agreed. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you never know. You, you just never know who's going to come along and join the community and come up with a new way of doing things that, you know, we've never thought of and enlighten us and um, maybe teach us a different way about keeping these snakes, which will make them easier to keep in the long run for everyone else. You know, I always think that when new folks come along, it's always, you know, we always should be welcoming towards them and, because you, you never know who's who the is going to be the next uh, Rico Water. You never know. Yeah. I mean, they they could be yeah. Davey could be looking at a chondra right now and interested in purchasing one. So, you know, we need to make sure we foster that and give everyone an opportunity to 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 be that chance to be the next Rico Water if that's what they want to be. Though, if you want to do that, you have some big shoes to fill. <laughs> I'm not going to try to <laughs> fill those shoes. I'm just going no. to. Uh, I'm just going to try to do, uh, you, you know, it's so funny here. We've talked about this before down here in Texas. It's such a, a new horizon compared to where you are, buddy, where, you know, it's the hotbed condro community in the world, really, or at least in the United States. You know, down here, uh, I attended in February the NARBC show in Arlington. Um, you know, there were, you know, thousands of people that came through a, a huge venue the number of green tree pythons uh, in there were, you know, I could count, I could count them on two hands. I mean, wow. just, just terribly underrepresented. And uh, I've promoted this before. I think, you know, one of the major ways of educating people about chondros is at those at the shows. You, you've got to bring your animals. You've got to bring your babies. You've got to bring your adults. You've got to show people that they can be handled. They're not going to bite your face off. They're relatively easy to take care of, providing the right conditions. You know, you're not going to – most of those people aren't on the MVF, okay? They're coming nope. into a reptile show, and they've seen a chondro maybe for the first time. You know, they don't even know about the MVF. They don't, you know. So that's their first exposure, and if you can show them that, that these things are – they're awesome, then you can get them interested. Right. Agreed. Agreed. I think a lot of times when people are looking for, you got you have a new keeper, like they've went to that show and they, they saw your animals, they're like, wow, that was really neat, and they do a search on the Internet. I think a lot of times people are, people get kind of turned off by forums in general. Um, I know I've been involved with some that were not related to anything snakes, and, you know, they seem to go through this cycle where it's it grows and builds, and then there's like a major fiasco or blowout or disagreement and things go south and people stop going there and it goes away. And I think people get kind of, you know, just get, grow weary of that cycle that happens on forums. So I think when they do a search and they see a forum come up, I think a lot of times people probably see it, but they're like, oh, another forum. And they, they may not want to go to it, not knowing that, you know, not all forums are created equal. and and um, Right. So I think, you know, I think uh, what David and Matt are doing is definitely a great step in the right direction. As I know, um, one of the things I talked to Matt Morris about, who's down in your your neck of the woods, um, is that, you know, people often send me emails and say, you know, I'm interested in the green tree python. 
Um, you know, I, I've got the Greg Maxwell book, um, but is there a good website that just talks about husbandry? And it's really hard yep. to find one. I mean, I've, I've tried myself yep. just to look. and I mean, I can say that my website doesn't have much husbandry related because, as you and I have talked about before, um, not everybody does the same thing with these animals. And, you know, it works well for me, might not work well for you, Bill, and vice versa. So I, I, I personally hate putting out that type of stuff, information, and, yeah. and have it not work for somebody else. But I do agree that maybe something – Something I think Matt's on the right on the right track, and I had told him if you know if he gets this you know gets it up and running, I'd be willing to even put it up on my website or or link it to from my website to the MVF for people to to, to take a look at it and read to it. it. You know, Matt did a really good job, and he, it's a it's a lot of work he put into it. So talk about passion. Yeah, it is sure, and uh, you know I'll say just in you know being pretty. Mi- pretty much intimate keeper of uh, other than green trees, you know, ball pythons, carpet pythons, and, and now green trees. Uh, there's much, you know, the way that people do things is much different in green trees. I mean, ball pythons, carpet pythons, it's a pretty textbook. You know, you keep your, right. you know, try to keep your hot spot here, your ambient temperature here. You know, it's, it's just, but in green trees, it's, you know, you got a lot of people, you know, keeping them with no hot spot at all. You got people misting, not misting. Um, you know, it's it just seems there's a lot more variety in the way people are are keeping chondros, which is good and bad. I mean, it's but for the new keeper, it can be confusing. You know, yes. What's what what what's the best way? How am I going to give my animal the best opportunity to thrive? And and it so it can be a little bit. A little bit confusing, right? I think what adds to the confusion is that we're now entering into the phase of reptile keeping where you know you don't have to have fifteen or twenty years of experience to keep a green tree python, right. um, and so a lot of the people that like you or I, Bill, that are keeping these animals, we won't, we don't need to go to a, a website. You know, we we have enough experience. Uh, through keeping other species, and we've networked long enough to know where to go for information. So that doesn't bother you or I. But someone who's who's new to green tree pythons, um, he doesn't have that experience like you and I have, the knowledge base that you and I have, and um, have hasn't had an opportunity to network. They they just can't find that information. Right. So. I think I think it needs to be out there, and I, I you know, Rob Ruel, uh For those you don't know, Rob, he's a, he's a chondro breeder. He's been doing it for a long time, doing keeping chondros and breeding chondros. Um, I was with him at a, a reptile show maybe four years ago, five years ago now, and the statement out of his mouth was so true. It's like I can't believe that here it is. You know, it was a four years ago, 2010 or 2009, and there's like a handful of uh, green tree python breeders and we were all at the same show. But it's like, there's no reason why all these people that have jungle carpets and, uh, you know, other Morelia species don't have chondros on their table. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I mean, I, why? Yeah. Why? I mean, it's a great question. 
we we need to we I need to figure it out. And... I guess part of it is is that they are. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't say that they're necessarily more difficult to keep, but they are more difficult to breed and to reproduce right. and to establish. They are. I do agree they are. I think they're more delicate. I think that, you know, things that wouldn't bother a carpet python or a jungle carpet python might bother a uh, a chondro. Um, yeah. You know, my big my biggest advice to people when they get their first chondro, they're all excited. You know, it's the snake's finally here, and, you know, they put it in the tub, but they're sliding the tub open 15 times a day to look at it. <laughs> um, right. You know, you're, I can understand that. I mean, they're, uh, you're excited. Um, you want to look at it. You know, it's it's probably been, a, you know, for a lot of folks, it's a lifelong dream to have a green tree python. And they're finally living this dream. And what I like to tell people is, you know, unbox that chondro 20 or 30 minutes and snap about, you know, 150 different pictures and then yeah. put it in the tub. And when you want to look at it, <laughs> Download those photos and stare at them on the computer, and leave your comments. So leave the alone. tub alone. Right. Yeah, leave the tub alone. That's <laughs> uh, that's very good advice. Right. So, all right, my friend. Yeah. All right, I think it's time for us to roll, Bill. What do you think? Yeah, let's wrap this episode up. And uh, listen, it was it was a great episode. Uh, Daniel is a He's a world-class expert on the chondros. I'm really glad we had him on. Yep, absolutely. It's, uh, I was glad to do this. The people, A lot of people that couldn't make the, the International Collective Arboreal Symposium, um, I mean, his his presentation was up there near the, the, the one of the best, one of the better presentations, and um, particularly for the chondro crowd, it really kind of, you know, Raised a lot of questions, um, made a lot of people, you know, a lot of people start thinking about what Daniel was right. saying, and um, it's kind of changed the outlook of a lot of folks too. It's pretty interesting how yeah. that his, his presentation has changed some some thinking in the Condor community. So, yeah, no, right, it definitely good. has. You can tell. You can tell on the forums even good. that it's it's uh, changed their thinking. So, yep. listen, buddy, have a great you keep sir, okay? I will. You too. If you get a chance tomorrow, if you got a box sitting around, see if you can box up some of that warm weather and uh, <laughs> ship some up to me. I'll I'll do that. I'll send it your way. Okay, Bill. All right. Have a good, good night, one. buddy. Good, good night.